in the air to left, well hit. Back is Craig. What a team. What a ride. The Cardinals are world champs in 2011. You know, it's been a while since I went into pout mode quite as much as I did on Sunday. <laughs> uh, I woke up fairly early Sunday morning. My father and I went to the hardware store to buy a part for my lawnmower. We fixed my lawnmower and I got in the house and it was time to watch a Saints game, which usually brings me joy. Uh, and since the Super Bowl, I've found a way to have joy in the wins and the losses. Well, that's over. The grace period's gone? It's done. Never have I been so embarrassed to be a fan of a team. I just felt so used. I felt stupid. I felt stupid for caring so much because it was so clear that they cared so little. <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know how you go from beating one team 62 to 7 to losing to basically to basically the same team. Right, right. The following week 31 to 21. And what was awful about it is the first half was dreadful. First half was dreadful. And they were so close to getting out of it down 3 to nothing. <laughs> yeah. But instead in the last 2 minutes they get like a punk Blocked for the first time in seven years. Breeze throws a pick. They give up two touchdowns. And then they get to a point in the game where it's 24 to 10. And Drew Breeze snaps the ball and just throws it to them. <laughs> and it's 31 to 10. And I went to bed. That was it. That's a rough game. I went to bed. I didn't, the, I didn't wake up until sometime during the uh, Sunday night game. I know at the beginning of the season when we were doing our football predictions, I, I said I kind of liked the talent that it seems like St. Louis has. I mean, I know Bradford didn't even play in that game, so that maybe makes it a little bit harder to swallow too. But what I said their problem was going to be is their, their brutal schedule. Their brutal schedule, sorry. Which it was. Which it has been. And we I said they might not have a win coming into their first division game against Arizona this next week. And pretty close i think both teams are going in one and seven or one and six so you know there is talent there but they it's were bound to win a game i have always hated playing winless teams and you know what i was nervous as hell going into the colts game yeah you thought that i don't know why i was just nervous as hell going into that game but the way they took care of business it gave me this false i guess set of confidence that they're not going to take teams for granted this is the second time since 2007 they've went into st louis and St. Louis hadn't had a win and embarrassed them. In 2007, Mark Bulger and Torrey Holt humiliated them. And that team was 0-8. So the Saints aren't immune to this. In 2002, they lost a game that they should have won to a winless Lions team. Uh, in 2006, they lost a game to a 4-9 Redskins team that they really needed. So it's just, I guess, part of Saints history, which is on November 1st, 
something you always think about <laughs> because it's All Saints Day. In 1967, the Saints were awarded their franchise today. They were called the Saints partially because it was All Saints Day. Welcome to the show. My name is Steve Bennett. My host is Don Russ. It is, as I said, November 1st, 2011. It is episode 49 of the Sportscasters, one week away from celebrating our 50th show. But we put a really good one together for you today. We have on the show former Buffalo Bill and Hall of Fame snub, I would say, wide receiver Andre Reed is going to be on the show today it's to talk about exciting. barbecue sauce and football and all kinds of things. He's got a lot of endeavors. Also, Jane Levy is going to join us to kind of take care of one of the three current book club books of the month, the Best American Sports Writing Series 2011, which she was the guest editor of. And Jane is going to talk to us about that book as well as her book, The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. So Jane is going to make her second appearance on the show. And also making her second appearance on the show today is Katie Baker, from Grantland.com, and we're going to talk about hockey with Katie, who covers it very well for Grantland. An interesting thing, today is the first time we've ever had two females on the show, and also the first time we've ever had two Grantland employees on the show, as Jane is also going to be the last boy doing the, some work. The book we're giving away, too. Right? We are currently giving away The Last Boy. Uh, it's still available. Uh, no one has won it yet. Okay. We had a couple wrong answers somehow <laughs> sent in. Not quite sure how you do that, but uh, we'll talk more about giving away the last boy later. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, uh, just want to remind you that last week we had episode 48 with Lee Jenkins and Damon Hack. You can find that episode on our website, www.sports-casters.com. If anyone's out there trying to sell you sports-caster, <laughs> don't bite. That's some weak shit. Yeah, it needs it with an S. Yeah, we need an S, so don't buy it. If that's if you're Christmas shopping for us, I guess is the best way to put it. That would be a bad gift. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can find episode 48 with Lee and Damon on our website, www.sports-casters.com. And we talked about it all week on Twitter. And our Twitter is at sports underscore casters. Next week... Episode 50, keep your fingers crossed. I think we're 90-plus percent that Mike Tirico is going to be our very special guest for episode 50. We're also going to have Steve Russian from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. And we're also going to have our pal, our pal Dave. Yeah, he was cracking me. I can't remember now, but he said something really funny. On, uh, I love when he does the, the game show host thing on the Sunday night or Sunday morning fantasy show. He does the buy or sell thing, and he said something funny. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he's a funny guy. I love his shame reports. Those yeah. have just been better and better all year. I love that video. Uh, okay, let's get started with today's show, and we start them all with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. My first thing this week, very exciting night. Uh, tonight is the start of the NBA 2011 season. Woohoo! Or it should have been. 
Uh, instead, we're treated to stories about Kim Kardashian leaving Chris Humphreys. Never saw that coming. Yeah. Never. It lasted 72 days, I 72 believe. 72 days. Poor, uh, I actually kind of feel bad for the guy a little bit, but uh, he should have saw it coming. And uh, the other good story of the day regarding basketball that isn't basketball-related is Kevin Durant uh, was tweeting about finding a flag football game. And someone tweeted back and said, hey, we got one going on uh, at Oklahoma State. So Kevin Durant said, can I play? And apparently they, they made a roster spot for him, and he played flag football. So if you look for Kevin Durant uh, flag football on YouTube, you'll see clips of Kevin Durant playing flag football, being watched by a bunch of people in Halloween costumes. And stuff. Was he there? Happened to just be in that city already? I'm not sure. I don't know where he's from or where he trains or what he's right. doing in the off season. That's interesting. But yeah, he ended up playing flag football with a bunch of kids. So good for him. He's supposed to be a good uh, character guy and a just a good ambassador for that league, which might seem greedy at this point with teams fighting over money, but good for him for doing something fun. You know what's pretty funny is that for the last couple of weeks, our DVR has been building up a bit. And Miss Caster... Not to be confused with Mrs. Mrs. Caster. Miss Caster Caster had the Kardashian wedding special saved on there, which is about four hours worth of shows. Yeah, there was, you know, they had a build up to it. It was two two hour shows. They made, like, they got paid like $100 million for that show. Yeah, and uh, that show, she finished watching it on Sunday. And they got the news of the divorce came on Monday. That's hilarious. So she would have waited one day to clear that off of the DVR. She wouldn't have been able to do so. Now, does she watch it? Uh, she's always been a fan of the show. She's okay for whatever reason. She's not just a fan of weddings. She's curious about the Kardashians. Okay, you know they they interest her for whatever reason. But she wasn't watching it because she just loves the idea of love and no, <laughs> no. I don't think so. Okay, uh, my first thing this week: the World Series was awesome. I know a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we didn't think it would be, about how it just kind of lacked something going into it. There was no Rangers, or there was no Phillies or Yankees or Red Sox, right. and maybe the matchup of the Rangers and the Cardinals wasn't very compelling, but what we found out as the World Series went on is that the teams were very exciting to watch play, and uh, it was an interesting World Series. It wasn't necessarily dominated by top flight pitching. No. There was lots of hitting. Albert Pujols had a historic night. A lot of bad coaching. Then didn't do much. There was really coaching. strange coaching. Uh, there was just a lot of really cool stuff. And the best part, obviously, was Game 6, yep. which is maybe the best World Series game I've ever watched. Uh, the poor Texas Rangers and their fans were three different times one strike away from being World Series champions. Yeah, really, the World Series ended there. They I mean, had two, ta- two chances to... Close out the Cardinals with two runs, two run leads going into the bottom half of the ninth. Right. And then the bottom half of the tenth, and neither time they could do it, but both times they got within one strike of doing it. Yep. So it was an awesome World Series, and a lot of people have kind of been talking the last few days about where it kind of ranks historically. Well, I remember watching the 1985 World Series, which was the Kansas City Royals and the St. Louis Cardinals. I vaguely remember watching bits and pieces of that, and I remember cheering for the Royals. So I looked today, and I made a top five list of my top five favorite World Series that I've watched. Okay. And I've watched basically all of them since then. 
So, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely all of them. I can never remember. I mean, I might not have seen every single World Series game, but right, pretty right. damn close. So, number five, I have the 0-2 World Series, which was the, the Anaheim Angels over the San Francisco Giants in seven games. That World Series, I think, is most famous for two things. One, the Rally Monkey. Right. And two, the Giants' inability to hold on to a 6 to nothing lead going into the eighth inning of game six. And thus, Barry Bonds never winning the World Series. Okay. Number four, I have this year's World Series. Cardinals over the Rangers in seven. Number three, I have the 86 World Series. The Mets over the Red Sox in game seven. And that was the World Series that I said to you on Saturday should have given... Or no, that was the 77 World Series. Never mind. Carlton Fisk. The Carlton Fisk about. World right. Series is the one that should have given the Rangers a little bit of hope because the Red Sox famously won that World's, that game six, but then lost game seven. In this one, the Red Sox famously lost game six uh, on the Buckner play, amongst other things, and then famously had a 3 to nothing lead in game seven. Couldn't Still hold that lost, either. Yeah. Still lost the 86 World Series to the Mets. Number two... Easily could have been number one, the 91 World Series, the Twins and the Braves. Uh, that World Series featured a Game 6 walk-off home run by Kirby Puckett and then a one to nothing 10-inning thriller between the Braves and the Twins in Game 7, John Smoltz versus Jack Morris. And that game and my number one World Series of all time is the 2001 World Series between the Diamondbacks and Yankees. Obviously, that game had the two, the game uh, three, no, game four and five, two, two out, ninth inning, three run home runs to give the Yankees once a tie and once a lead, once by Brocious, once by Martinez, both of them off of Byung Young Kim. Also had the Derek Jeter walk-off home run, the Mr. November home run, and then it had the blown save by Mariano Rivera. Rivera in game seven, which nobody's seen coming. Juan Gonzalez, right? Uh, nope, Adrian. Adrian. Gonzalez. Okay, right. Uh, had the hit. And uh, the backdrop of that entire World Series, of course, was 9-11 and George Bush throwing out the first pitch at Game 1. So that's my kind of quick list of where I rank the World Series that have happened in my lifetime. I don't – obviously, like we've said before, I don't follow baseball as closely, but I do remember most of what you said. And the strange thing about that last one is I believe that is one of two – very, very memorable sports moments I watched in the Williams Center at Fredonia. <laughs> really? It was uh, Yeah, I might have been working that night there, or I just gone there late for some snacks or something. But I remember seeing the hit, a little bloop in the yep. center field, basically. Just uh, over Jeter. Yeah. Uh, to, to, for, to, lo- to lose that game or win that game, depending on who you're rooting for. And I believe I saw the last play of the uh, Rams-Titans game in the Williams Oh, Center. the tackle there. Yeah, the tackle. I don't know why Why I wouldn't have been watching the Super Bowl somewhere else. But that, for whatever reason, it sticks with me that I saw that play on one of the TVs in the Do Williams Do you know Center. what other famous sports play happened simultaneous of Game 7 of the 01 World Series? So would have been, what else would have been going on? Hockey? It was a football. football. Sunday night football game. Sunday night football. I don't. Talk- Kyle Turley tossed Jets players helmet down the field (laughs) that night as well. (laughs) Did that cost him the game too? Basically, yeah. 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 (laughs) But I mean, really, it wasn't necessarily fair because Turley did enough to earn a personal foul. 
the guy that Turley was fighting with did enough to earn a personal foul. And they should have the Jets should have gotten the original personal foul for trying to rip Aaron Brooks' head off, which started the whole <laughs> fight. So how that evened out, or actually didn't even out, and the Saints were on the it's all because he threw the helmet. If he would have just like yeah. kicked the helmet. They talk on a local sports show a lot about like the, the name the athlete game. Is that the Kyle Turley game? Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be. It's right? gotta be, yeah. Absolutely. I mean everyone remembers that look. Yeah. Dumbass. <laughs> all right, my second thing this week. Uh, not to get into how bad this guy has been because you've heard it everywhere, but Tim Tebow, he's in the news somewhat. I mean, if you want to call it news, n- dork news, I guess, for other reasons. You've heard of planking before and yep. owling, and just posing in weird positions on top of weird things and having people take pictures of it and uploading it to Twitter or websites or whatever. Well, there's a website now called tebowing.com. <laughs> Tebow, <laughs> apparently it works just like planking or owling, but rather than being flat as a board or crouched like an owl, you get into the uh, Tim Tebow trademark, one hand or one elbow on the knee, head in the hand, uh, like he's kind of thinking or praying, kind of like the uh, the thinker statue, but on one knee. And people are doing it on top of all sorts of objects. There's, if you look at the website, it's <laughs> the pretty weatherman, funny. weatherman during it during his weather forecast. <laughs> There's uh, people on top of a fighter jet. Outside of churches, yeah. So at Halloween parties, T-bowing is the new craze, which I think is funnier than planking, which has run its course. I think. I think T-bowing is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. Way to go, T-bowing! My number two thing is something that just pisses me off. A couple of weeks ago on this show, we had Pablo Estore from yeah. uh, Sports Illustrated on to talk about an unbelievable, just article, a feel-good story, feel-good story that he yep. had written about Dominique Whaley who is a walk-on success story at the University of Oklahoma. Well, last week that success story was temporarily put on hold as Dominic Whaley broke his leg yeah. in the first play of the Oklahoma Sooners versus Kansas State game last week. Basically, it looked like the way an offensive lineman gets hurt. It came from the backside. He got rolled up on, and he broke a bone in his in his leg. Whatever the the last bone towards your ankle is. Yeah. Is that the tibia? Fibia? I don't remember which is Some which. leg bone. Right. So he broke his leg, and he's essentially out for the season, ending his story. Hopefully, it doesn't ruin his chances at getting a scholarship. Hopefully, he's still going to be projected to be the starter for his senior season next year at Oklahoma. Hopefully, that means he'll still qualify for his scholarship. And he won't be a walk-on anymore. But it just it just hurts because, first of all, it was such a great story. And it just sucks when stuff like that happens. And right, right. I immediately tweeted Pablo. And uh, his quote was, effing awful. Yep. Effing awful. Yeah, you, so. you we talked about that a little it's bit a over the weekend. And you said yeah. that he, he was in contact with the family and yep. stuff like that. So he knows him on a personal level. Sounds like a good kid. And too bad. Hopefully, like you said, it all works out for him. My last story, someone who things haven't worked out for, Mark Brunel of the now Jets, more famously, I suppose, from the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, Jaguars mm-hmm. has lost $50 million, that's a million with an M, dollars in failed investments. So this guy who has been a highly touted player since his college days comes yeah, out, probably gets UCLA, a I believe. big fat signing bonus, all the whole nine makes over $50 million in his career uh, and lost all of it in nine 
failed ventures, mm. according to our friends at SportsGrid. When do you get to the point where you know you're just not good at investing money? I think before nine failed investments of his nine. Oh, I'm sorry. He went to Washington, not okay. UCLA. I knew it was a Pac-10. Of his nine ventures, five are no longer even operating. Oh. So, and he's also the focus of no less than six lawsuits. My my question, or at least my thought when I first heard this was, I'm not sure if I'm more surprised by the fact that he's lost $50 million or by the fact that he's still in the league. I had no idea he played for the Jets. Well, I remember him from Hard Knocks uh, yes. last year as kind of being the guy always sitting next to Sanchez and kind of mentoring Sanchez. The team before the Jets that he played for was the Saints. Okay. He backed up Breeze there for he's a bit. He's a Redskin for a Played while, for the so Redskins as well. And, you know, he's had a great career, and you kind of made the point off air that he's worked his whole life to earn this paper, and you would think that his he should be set for life, his kids would be set for life. And I think in that story, did you mention it? He's got to go work as a oh no, I didn't. pharmaceutical sales rep now? Yeah, yeah. so I mean... To I get, earn money? That's, that's nuts. It's stupid. And what what did you ever hear of let your money work for itself like no why not just hire an accountant let let the accountant be the money man why why does he have to be this businessman what was he totally outsmarted himself oh yeah for sure i mean on a number of occasions (laughs) at least nine i mean it's okay to want to invest your money and i guess let somebody do it for you Uh, that's a disaster yeah all disasters spank me if i ever lose 50 million dollars (laughs) please all right my last thing is kind of an update of a story that we had touched on last week where we talked about former or current and always Buffalo native uh, Rob Gronkowski, who plays for the New England Patriots, uh, spending his bye week with a porn star. Yep. And uh, there was a kind of a picture of it on Twitter. Well, he has many brothers. I think he has, I think he's one of three five. in the league. At least there was three that played in the league. And then, okay. So he's one of four. Because he has a younger younger brother whose name is Glenn Gronkowski, and he goes to Kansas State University. There is a picture of him standing in front of the football field. I don't know if he plays on their football team or not. I don't know if he's maybe there now as like an early graduate, you know, and it's going to be on the team next year. I'm not sure what his status is, but he did something really funny. <laughs> <laughs> he basically mocked his brother and. Uh, had a girl, nice, cute little blonde girl uh, that he must know, in a Gronkowski jersey uh, that his brother must be a replica jersey of his brother, a Patriots jersey. And then he's standing there in the position that his brother was, kind of with his arms over his head and his fingers pointing down at the yeah, girl in yeah. the jersey. And uh, he tweeted it with the words, Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for Halloween, he went Glenn G- Gronkowski went as Rob, Rob Gronkowski Gronkowski. posing with a B.B. Jones lookalike. <laughs> kind of a brilliant Halloween costume. Yep. What were you for Halloween? Don? I couldn't think of anything. And then when I was supposed to get dressed up, I fell asleep instead. Oh. Yeah, I, I, dro- I dropped the ball. I tweeted or put on Facebook that I suck at Halloween. Yeah, I was a uh, lemonade stand. Oh, nice. Yeah, it turned out real good. Uh, you could <laughs> buy le- No, I, I wasn't anything. I, I suck at Halloween. Too. I got to give myself more less. than four days to prepare for it, I think. I could just care less about it. Yeah. No, it's stupid. All right, that's it for three things today. We are going to take a break and come back with Andre Reed, formerly of the Buffalo Bills, living out in San Diego, 
after we talk to Andre, we're going to do a book club update. Then we're going to close out our time as a book club reading the 2011 Best American Sports Writing Series by interviewing Jane Levy, the guest editor of that book. Don and I are going to do five on fantasy, and we're going to end the interviews tonight with Katie Baker from Grantland, Talk Little Hockey. And then we're going to end the show with pick four. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Andre Reed. The bills make me want to kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now, the bills are making it happen now. Our next guest is from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and played college football at Cutstown University. In 1985, he was drafted by the Buffalo Bills in the fourth round of the NFL entry draft. He was a seven-time Pro Bowler, played in four Super Bowls, is a member of the Buffalo Bills Wall of Fame and the Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. His 951 receptions, 13,198 yards receiving, and 87 touchdowns are NFL Hall of Fame numbers that have yet to be treated as such by the writers who vote for the Hall each year. Today, he is kept busy by doing some television, creating a barbecue sauce, and giving back to multiple charities in the Western New York area and around the country. A warm sportscaster is welcome to the great Andre Reed. How are you doing today, Andre? What's going on, man? Just uh, got done playing some golf. Played good for, for nine holes, and the wheels kind of got a little loose on the last nine. But uh, overall, can't beat San Diego weather. It's uh, pretty nice out here, out there with some friends, and had a good time, man. It's okay. Nice. So nine good holes, and then you, you kind of fell apart <laughs> yeah. at the end. How many birdies? Uh, I had two. I actually had two today. I just, on the back nine, I just, you know, golf is a different sport. It isn't football uh, where you can difficult. rely on other people to kind of help you out. And golf, it's just you, and that's it. So it's, uh, you have days like that. So uh, it's all good, though. Who's the best person that I would know that you've played golf against? Uh, you mean guys that are pretty good? Yeah, like who have you played that I would know who they are? Like if you said, you know, my cousin, well, all right. But like who, you know. Oh, 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 I mean, you mean other players? Other yeah. NFL players? Yeah, or baseball players. Oh, or yeah, I played, player. you know, I played a lot of charity, played a lot of charity golf tournaments. Uh, uh, played with Drew Brees a few times and Sterling Sharp and Marshall Falk. These are, you know, these guys are pretty good sticks. They're pretty good, pretty good players. They play a lot. Yeah. Uh, they dedicate themselves to their game, so to <laughs> the game. Uh, I do too, but, you know, this game is very tedious and, you got to be really, really, really dedicated if you want to get better. And some guys just have the talent, but you know this is a game where uh, some days you have it, some days you don't, and you just you know you come back to live another day, and that's about it. Yeah, it's uh, it can be very frustrating golf. I know exactly. Oh, what very! You mean. It's, it's the most frustrating thing I've ever done <laughs> as far as sports wise. Um, it, it's 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 something that a little white ball can really make you mad. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, you know, I was thinking as I was preparing for this interview. I was thinking a lot uh-huh. about the current Bills team that has everyone so right. excited around here. And I was thinking right. about how there's probably a lot of players on this current Bills team that you can re- relate with. Guys who played yeah. at smaller colleges and then, mm-hmm. you know, were maybe overlooked a little bit in the NFL draft. I mean, you were a fourth round pick, but uh, mm-hmm. you went to a small college. Do, do you find yourself relating to guys like Fred Jackson who went to a co college, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is this a Bills team that you can easily relate with? I definitely can because, you know, let's face it, 25 years ago when I came to the league, uh, Division II guys and guys from smaller schools were really unnoticed um, back then. Um, now, if you look at a lot of NFL rosters, there's guys like Fred Jackson who are is, is having an MVP year to me, uh, very underrated. The guy just goes out and plays every single game and gives his heart every game, and it shows on the field. Um, and, and a lot of the... Uh, 
you know, pro bowlers and a lot of guys that are just good players are the heart and soul of their football teams. And if, I think if you go around the NFL and all of their rosters, you'll see four or five guys like a Fred Jackson who just goes out and does his job and he makes people better. And that's why the Bills are, well, there's a number of reasons why the Bills are five and two. But, um, you know, he's definitely a main reason why they are uh, playing so well right now. Yeah, another one of those uh, kinds of players that you made me think of is a Marcus Colston who played his college football at Hofstra. They don't even have football anymore. Right. He mostly played as a tight end. He was a seventh-round pick, and, and he's put up you know, Pro Bowl numbers, really, his first five seasons. Do you think that sometimes yeah. to be a great receiver, you need to be in a situation where you have a quarterback like Drew Brees? Like, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of times you're in situations where uh, offensive coordinators, you know, they have to have a certain offense for you uh, to to help you succeed. Um, you know, Marcus has uh, has Drew Brees, you know, a, a perennial perennial Pro Bowler. Um, you know, he's been an MVP candidate the last three or four years, uh, and you know, one of the top five quarterbacks in the league. Uh, Drew just puts up numbers left and right, and I think uh, it's 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 how their offense is structured too. And um, you know, Marcus Colson is just a big receiver. And like you said, he was a tight end in college, so he's uh, he's able to uh, get a lot of mismatches with smaller corners and use his body to catch footballs, and and that's why he's he's having a pretty good year. So um, a lot of times, man, guys like that are under the radar, but it again, it, it's it's how an offense uses you and, and puts you in situations to uh, to succeed. You were a guy who played back when the league was I don't I don't think I want to say tougher but where there wasn't as many rules Yeah it was to pre- it was tougher It was tougher okay we'll, <laughs> no, we'll, I'm just fine. Yeah we'll say that uh, my question is for you do you kind of get jealous that you're not playing now it seems like No you those... know what I never get jealous because I was I played to me you know to in my eyes I played in the best era uh, in football and everybody that played before me is going to say there was good I played in a great era as far as wide receivers go with Jerry Rice and Sterling, uh, Chris Carter, Tim Brown. All these guys are, are, you know, Jerry's in the Hall of Fame. You know, Chris and Tim will probably be in the Hall of Fame too. I mean, we we played uh, Michael Irvins. All those guys are, are Hall of Famers. And it, it's it, it kind of every five, six, seven, eight years, those kind of guys come along. You know, right now you got Larry Fitzgeralds and you got all Reggie Waynes and all these guys at Wes Welkers. These guys have been consistent. Uh, for the last four or five years, and if they keep doing what they're doing, you know, they can be, you know, potential Hall of Famers too. You know, T.O. and Randy Moss, guys like that, uh, Marvin Harrison, guys that are Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt. These are the next kind of guys that will be debated on when the Hall of Fame comes up. And it will be a little different than it was back when, you know, when I came out because the, the league is a lot different than it was. It's more of a passing league. Uh, if, you, if you look at our team uh, in, in the early 90s, you know, we were like 52-48, and that was run the pass. And nowadays, it's probably the other way around. They, they pass more than 50% of the time and run, you know, 45% of the time because of the way defenses uh, are, are, are defending. Um, so, um, you know, that's just how it is, man. That's just how the league is now. That's just how the, how the generations change over time. And, uh, again, I'm not uh, jealous about, uh, you know, anything. I played 16 years in the league. Um, I got uh, 16 good years out. I played with some great players, some Hall of Fame players, and a Hall of Fame coach. And I mean, I I wouldn't trade that for anything. We think you're a Hall of Fame player. Why Why do you think it's been? And it's not just you. I think we would agree that Chris Carter and Tim Brown uh, deserve to be in there. Why do you think it's been yeah. so hard for wide receivers to 
crack I don't know. the it's Hall just, of Fame? It, it is. It is hard. And and if you look at the Hall of Fame, um, there's only 21 receivers uh, in the Hall of Fame. There's only 267 players that get that distinction uh, out of maybe more than 20,000 that ever came through the league since 1920. So just to even be in that class and be in the finals and all that kind of stuff is that's that's just a big accomplishment for me. And 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 I'm, I can't say it's all because of me. You got to have the people around you that make you better and expect expect you to be that way. Um, I had some great players that made me play better on Sundays. And um, again, I won't take that away from anybody or anything. Um, a lot of guys in this league play ten years and maybe play in two or three playoff games. You know, I got a chance to play in almost twenty playoff games. You know, I went to four Super Bowls. I I was you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's what you dream about as a kid. As a kid, I dreamed about playing on Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday, and, you know, that dream came true four times. Uh, we didn't win. Uh, that would have been a, a different dream. You know, that's the dream of winning it all. But, um, again, I won't trade that for, for anything. I'd go to bat and go to any war with those guys do it over again. If, 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 that was, uh, if I had to go back in time, those are the guys I'd pick to go with. So is it important to you to get into the Hall of Fame at all, or it won't change your outlook one way or another? Well, no, it, it's not going to change my outlook. The only thing it changes is that you're just – named as one of the best to ever play the game at that position. Uh, my, my family's more, uh, uh, more talk about it to me more than anybody, my family <laughs> and friends. You know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen not on my time. Um, I, I think one thing that I know is I gave it all. I gave it 100% out there when I was in between the lines and out there on the field. So that's all you can ask for, uh, and especially if your peers and the guys, the people you played against really respect you uh, for what you did and, and how you came and played, um, that's all you can. That's all you can hope for is, is the respect from other players. You mentioned all the great players that were around you, and uh, tragically, a few weeks ago, Ken Hall passed away. And uh-huh. I think that one positive thing that's come out of a, a tragedy is that we've all mm-hmm. taken the opportunity to look back and remember how great those Bills teams were. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with us? Just maybe a story or a memory about those great Bills teams that kind of... Well, re- I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's universal. You know, our team was was on the top for a lot of years, uh, and everybody had to come through Buffalo to not only go to the Super Bowl, but just, we were the team to beat. Just like right now, the team that beats always the Patriots or the Steelers or, you know, whoever. But, you know, in, in or the Cowboys or the 49ers back in the day, it was, it was the 49ers and the Cowboys and the Bills and maybe the Steelers that you had to beat to get to the Super Bowl, all these other teams. So, you know, we had a bullseye on our chest for a lot of years, and, and we kind of relished in that, too. And and that's the challenge that you you take at hand every single Sunday, every single week you prepare is somebody's out there for you, somebody's out to, to beat you. Now, how do you respond to that? And I take that in life, too. I tell my kids uh, the same things, that you're going to go through a lot of challenges in life. Things are just not going to be handed to you. And it's going to be up to you to figure out how do, how do you deal with that challenge. Do you, do you deal with it uh, positively and try to get better, or do you not deal with it positively and, and get worse? So, you know, there's a lot of life lessons that I learned from uh, from being a football player, uh, not only in the NFL, but from when I started when I was eight years old. You know, I learned a lot about life, and you know, right now, it a lot of those life lessons are are with me, and I teach those lessons to my kids. So, yeah, was the comeback game? your favorite game from that era, or is there maybe a different well, of game? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course it was. I mean, there's a lot of games. I mean, I could sit here with you for the next two hours and talk about games, but of course that one stands out in, 
in the archives of, of the league as the greatest comeback of all time. And uh, just to be a part of that was, was great. And I think, uh, um, you know, being a part of that, um, it, it showed what uh, not, not giving up means. It showed resiliency. It showed not giving up. And uh, you never can keep a good man down unless, hey, it's, it ain't over. It's not over until it says zero, zero, zero on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the post career and the sauce. I, I was, uh, yeah, I was, oh, at, yeah, definitely. I was at tops the other day. Uh, I knew you was going to mm-hmm. have you on and I picked up a bottle of the over the middle sauce. It's delicious. We had it on our fried chicken. Uh, the girlfriend and I enjoyed it. What made you get into barbecue sauce of all things? And, you know, well, nice. you know, I play, I play a lot of golf and you know, you, a lot of business deals are struck on the golf course. If people don't realize that there's a lot of business deals that go down on a golf course because it's relaxing, supposedly supposed to be relaxing. <laughs> um, just with a bunch of guys and you know, we were talking about things and uh, a friend of mine was like, well, my friend down in Arkansas makes barbecue sauce. I, I think, you know, let's, let's check out his sauce and see what we could do and we can tie it on your name into it and we can make money for charity and, do some really good things in the community. And I was like, well, you know, that's, per- that's perfect because I-, I do have my own charity golf tournament, and this is just another way to give back uh, to the community. And um, we launched it about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, um, and uh, it's doing well. And I think, you know, we're, we're moving forward with it, and uh, it's-, it's one thing about it, it's- it kind of defines me. Uh, it was all purpose. It's an all-purpose sauce. You can put it on anything. And, uh, again, I think the big thing is, you know, we're giving back to charity and we're giving back to some kids that really need it. Yeah, and your website, uh, which is andreidotm.com, andreidotm.com, right. there is many charities, the Second Mile, the Boys and Girls Club, Fresh Start, right. all these different charities, Kids Escaping Drugs. Um, how, you know, as, as an athlete, uh, a former athlete, however you want to put it, you'll always be an athlete, but... Uh, how important is the charity aspect of your life to you, and is it just a natural fit for you to kind of now that you're not playing to just focus on the Andre Reed Charitable Foundation? And is that really your passion and what moves you right now? Exactly, and I think you know we all uh, after our playing playing days are over, we all go our separate ways, and we all get into different things. And a lot of my teammates are into have their own charitable foundations, and they do a lot of good things in their communities. Uh, you know, I just feel as an athlete. You know, it, it's an obligation. It, it's something that uh, I think you should do. You know, my dad always said, and I say this, uh, you know, on my website, my dad always said that if you're in a position to make a difference, take advantage of that. Take advantage of that position and, and go ahead and make a difference because you're going to make a lot of people happy. And, and you don't need pat on the back, you know, a pat on the back all the time. I think the little things you do are the ones that really come out the most and really, uh, you know, come to, for, come to the front. It's the small things. And, Again, I tell my kids that all the time. I say, hey, you don't have to be, you know, King Kong to, to knock down a building. Sometimes you just get a little bit of dynamite, put it on the bottom of the building, and blow it up, the building will still come down. <laughs> so um, I know that's a funny analogy, but that's, uh, that's kind of how I go through things a little bit. The sportscasters are here, lucky enough to be talking with the great Andre Reed, who you can find on Twitter. He is at Andre underscore Reed 83. And I wonder about Twitter. Uh, you seem to enjoy it. It seems like you tweet quite a bit. You like to interact with the fans. Mm-hmm. How do you think it would have been different for you if Twitter would have came out oh, when yeah. you were a player? Wow. The social media is such a powerful thing now. Twitter and Facebook and 
there's so many ways a guy can get out his message or get out what he's doing, uh, what he's doing in the community or whatever through through the social media and Twitter and Facebook and all these other avenues you know, on the internet you can get out. Um, I think you know, 25 years ago, it, you know, the internet was wasn't even I don't think it wasn't even born yet. I think it was just starting. Uh, computers were just starting 25 years ago. So it just goes to show you how far in 25, 30 years, how far not only social media, but how far uh, that has come uh, in 30 years. Um, it's it's amazing. And I think uh, uh, a lot of people use it in different ways. Um, some people don't use it in the way they should. But, you know, it's a great, it's a great avenue for me uh, to get my... Uh, out there and get out uh, what I'm trying to do. Uh, you are in San Diego, and the Bills will be there soon, and I know you're trying to organize a bit of a, a party. Would you want to give some details about that in case any of our listeners are going to be down in San well, Diego the, for the game? Yeah, the San Diego Bills backers are are uh, are going to have a tailgate here in San Diego for the uh, game against the Bills, uh, the Bills in San Diego, December 11th at the stadium. And it's been on Twitter um, if people go, I don't know how many tickets are left because they're going really fast. Uh, if they go to www.sdsanagobillsbackersclub.org uh, and find out how many tickets are left, they can get a ticket to the tailgate, and all proceeds uh, will go to KED, which is in Western New York. And uh, we're all going to have a good time, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're just going to be there throwing the ball around, things like that, talking? Well, I don't know if I'll be doing all that. I'll just be <laughs> doing my due diligence, you know, being there for – uh, for OTM and being there and supporting uh, the San Diego Bills backers. Right. All right. It's uh, AndreReadOTM.com. Got to remember that. Right. The Twitter is at Andre underscore Reed 83. And right. you can also find him on, on Facebook. There's a link to that right on uh, the web page. Yeah, I have, a, I have a page. I have a fan page too, an OTM fan page. So people can go there and check that out too. Anything else that uh, we need to to mention on your end? I don't want to leave anything no, just, out. No, uh, I, I just appreciate the time and appreciate you letting me get the uh, you know sauce out there and talking a little bit and and doing some good things. I yeah, appreciate the, it. the sauce is delicious, and we'll be uh, pulling for you in in uh, January when they uh, revisit this hall vote. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Well, that was pretty awesome. NFL player Andre Reid, thank you very much for coming out of the Sportscasters. We greatly appreciate it. Quick book club update. We didn't do one last week. We just didn't get to it. But uh, just a couple things to mention here. Today, in a minute, we are going to finish our time reading the best American sports writing for 2011, which was guest edited by our next guest, Jane Levy. Definitely one of the better editions of the book i think that you know we spent that time earlier what was it february maybe or march where we looked at all of the different books in the series and i think what's great about jane's edition is there's a lot more dot-com pieces than current you know in the past kind of shows the book's willingness to kind of adjust to where a lot of the writing is these days and I'm going to talk about this with Jane, but there's a really interesting story in there about hockey fighting. And it's interesting that she would have picked that when she did because this summer we had the death of the three hockey enforcers. 
And recently, Real Sports on HBO did a piece on the hockey enforcer. So it's interesting that you would pick that story. I also mentioned that I was really interested in a piece that, that was published by Michael Faber from SI.com about the the Olympics hockey tournament and kind of goes through the five seconds it took Sidney Crosby to dash the hearts of all the uh, Americans <laughs> watching that game. So yeah. we're going to talk with Jane about that. We're also going to talk to Jane a little bit about a previous sportscaster's book of the month, which is now on paperback, The Last Boy by uh, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood. We tried to give this away last week, and it didn't work out. So let's try again. If you can email us this week and correctly name the three guests from this show, we will give you a copy of The Last Boy. Now, if more than one person emails us, we'll put all of the correct entries into a hat and pick one out. So don't think on Wednesday that somebody must have already emailed us. If you know the three guests, email us. And next Tuesday, we'll take all the correct responses, put them in a hat, and pick out a winner of The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. Okay. Also this month, we've been reading Jeff Perlman's book, Sweetness, uh, which, of course, is a book about the enigmatic life of Walter Payton. And the book has been very controversial. I think there's a lot of people out there who have just read the excerpt that Sports Illustrated printed and not the entire book and drawn conclusions. And if you go to jeffperlman.com, he actually took some time out to write, to kind of squash some of the myths that have began to circulate about sweetness. And Jeff is going to join us either next week or the week after to talk about sweetness and some of these myths. And I really encourage you to not judge the book until you read it. What's the old kind of saying? You should never... Read a judge a book by its cover, and I think that that's kind of unfairly happening to sweetness. The third book that's kind of been in the mix this month is a book by our friend John Wertheim about UFC, and John will probably be joining us on November fifteenth to talk about that book. So that's kind of where we stand. Read Sweetness, buy a copy of it. It's available at in the iBook store. It's available for the Nook. Uh, It's available on Amazon.com, in any bookstore that you might check out, Barnes & Noble. Pick up a copy of Sweetness. It's by Jeff Perlman. It's a New York Times bestseller. He was also the author of The Bad Guys 1, which was about the 86 Mets team that we talked about a little earlier. So he's a highly accomplished writer, and I beg you to check out his book. And if you need more information, you can go to JeffPerlman.com. All right, that's going to do it for the book club update. That's just me. Let's kind of extend the discussion and bring Jane Levy in. So we're going to take a break and be right back with Jane. Our next guest is from Long Island, New York. She did her undergraduate studies at Bernard College before earning her master's degree at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Early in her career, she was a staff writer at Women's Sports and Self Magazines. She then went on to be a staff writer at the Washington Post from 1979 to 1988. She has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Daily News. Her work has been uh, anthologized in many collections, including Alex Beth's Lasting Yankee Stadium Memories, 
her comic novel Squeeze Play was held by Entertainment Weekly as the best novel ever written about baseball. She also is the author of New York Times bestseller Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, and The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. This fall, she was the guest editor for the Greatest American Sports Writing Series 2011 edition. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very distinguished Jane Levy. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm great. You didn't call me ma'am. I'm very happy. (laughs) Uh, You have made it very clear that in our uh, uh, interactions, you'd like the chivalry to be minimized as much as possible. Yeah, well, it's also like I don't want anybody to think I'm old. <laughs> I promise <laughs> I promise. as this interview goes on, I will not open the door for you. Okay, thank you. Can, you. you can open your own door. Uh, <laughs> cool, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> and feel, feel free to order whatever you'd like off the menu. Uh, I'm excited to have you on today. I hope I can say that at least. Uh, yes, we, you have, of course, and I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> we uh, we yeah. spoke over the summer. You were fighting off some killer bees, if I recall. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. <laughs> uh, we spoke over the summer, and, and we talked a lot about Mickey Mantle and the book. And before we get on to the Best American Sports Writing Series, I want to just talk a little bit about the fact that since we talked last, uh, your tremendous book, The Last Boy, has become a paperback uh, as well as a hardcover. And um, the publisher was nice enough to send me uh, a copy of that, uh, just, I guess, for the heck of it, and we appreciated that. And uh, I guess my question for you is, what kind of goes into taking, uh, when you have a New York Times bestseller that was as successful as The Last Boy does, what is the approach to the next version, the the paperback. Do you try to change as little as possible, or do you have a certain agenda of things that you want to maybe include or not include, or how does the process work as a writer who has this great book and is facing the next version of it? Uh, well, it's, it's the good thing about publishing today, and there's very little that one can say is good, given how few people read in this country now, um, is that because... Um, computers allow you to do this and technology allows it, you can make corrections. <laughs> so um, when you make a mistake, and yes, I made some, um, you can clean them up and improve them. So all through the year, um, I kept a file, and I, I don't want to make it sound like it was that large, but I kept a file of all the things that uh, might need to be improved, elaborated, or just plain corrected. I think I may have told you I killed off a lovely man named Frank Sullivan, who was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox in their most woeful days in the 50s. And I, he, he gave the best quote there ever was about pitching to Mickey Mantle, which is, how, do you, how did you pitch to the Mick? And he said, with tears in my eyes. So, I mean, I had to use that, and, and everybody said, oh, yeah, Frank's dead, Frank's dead, and I <laughs> looked him up online, yeah, Frank's dead. So I attributed the quote to the late Frank Sullivan, only to receive a very, very um, tart, and, and, and understandably so, um, email from his wife, Mrs. Frank Sullivan, informing me that she wasn't too happy about getting condolence calls because <laughs> Frank is alive and well um, and living in Kauai, and he is one of the dearest men I've ever met. And so this error and sloppy reporting on my part led to a new friendship, and in the new edition, Frank is alive and well. 
Uh, Mickey's also uh, plays in Independence, Kansas, not Independence, Missouri, and some dates that were, you know, made uh, the wrong dates attributed to certain um, newspaper stories that I quoted were improved. But what really improved, Steve, is that readers called and wrote and emailed and texted and Facebooked with um, suggestions for leads that I would never have known. I mean, this guy knew so many people, and so many people had interactions with him, albeit perhaps only once in passing. But um, I, I, I was astonished by the number of stories that uh, that I you know was able to then track down, like a Baltimore cop who um, <laughs> Facebooked me and said, well, I, I arrested Mickey Mantle on a Baltimore street corner in the mid-60s. And the story goes that Dick Elwood, then a um, rookie beat cop in, in Baltimore, just out of the Marines, saw Mickey and um, some of his Yankee pals stumbling down the street. Mickey was doing most of the stumbling. And uh, public drunkenness, uh, Dick reminded me, was a serious deal back then. And people, you know, were told on the force, you know, you got to get these people off the street. So he warned them, and he asked the Yankees to get him up when he fell at Frank's, uh, sorry, Dick's feet. And uh, everybody assumed he was joking because who would arrest Mickey Mantle? And finally, he called for a paddy wagon, and um, the paddy wagon came, and the officers said the same thing to him that the Yankee said, which is, do you know who this is? <laughs> and so, um, he, yeah, I know who it is, and they carted him off to Central Booking and the Central Station, and when um, he got there, the um, old salt lieutenant on duty called him aside and said, do you know who this is? And yeah, I know who it is. And he said, well, here's how it's going to be. We're not going to arrest Mickey Mantle. We are not going to book Mickey Mantle, and we're going to just let him go and pretend this never happened. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we want to do this. So um, anyway, uh, you know, so there are all these new stories, and I keep getting them now. The paperback wow. was published um, two weeks ago. I get no, three weeks ago, I guess, and um, and I'm I'm really pleased that it's uh, on the New York Times bestseller list again. Um, I'm astonished, but it's testimony to Mickey's staying power, I think. But now I'm getting all new readers um, to um, uh, send in stories, and not all of them are about Mickey being drunk, by the way. Right. Um, though those do tend to stick out in people's minds. A guy emailed me the other day and said that his father was stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska when Mickey made what was a fairly well-publicized trip up there uh, during the off-season. I think it was a Bob Hope special or some something. I think I have it upstairs, as a matter of fact. And that he got really, um, uh, let's say, uh, relaxed at, at the officer's club or PX, whatever it was, and stumbled out into the snow. And this guy thought, well, you know, I haven't seen Mickey in a while. He found him, passed out in the snow. He said if he hadn't found him, he would have frozen to death. Oh. That's, that's wow, <laughs> unbelievable. You know, it, I remember you, you've, you've been very honest about the fact that you know Mickey's your guy, he's your favorite player growing up, and 
you, you, you mention it in the book. And I wonder, now that you're a little bit away from the project and uh, you keep getting all these great stories and, and you get, you're learning more and more and more about him, have your opinions changed at all? Have you, have you found yourself more endeared to the man, less endeared? Uh, where does your relationship uh, with Mickey Mantle stand after you've completed this project? Well, we've broken up. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Right. Um, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, is he still your guy? And the answer is no. Um, he's now a guy. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the problem is with so many of these um, larger-than-life physical specimens, guys who can hit a ball 500 feet or throw a spiral 80 yards downfield or break the four-minute mile you know, uh, barrier when nobody else has been able to do so, um, is, is that... You know, you expect them to be larger-than-life people. And in some parts of their existence, they are. I mean, did anybody have a bigger smile than Mickey Mantle? No. Did anybody have bigger forearms? No. But that didn't mean there wasn't a real and fragile and vulnerable human being inside that packaging. And um, when we see them and make the fallacious assumption that the exterior matches the interior, um, you know, we're setting ourselves and, you know, these guys up for a real fall. So I think it's sort of healthier to see him as a person and not, you know, the big guy, as we like to say in sports. I hope I can ask this question the right way, but I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it yet, maybe just the excerpt in Sports Illustrated, maybe the whole book, but Jeff Perlman... Uh, has written a book called Sweetness, and it's one that we're taking a look at here on the podcast, and Jeff's going to join us in a bit. Jeff has kind of been overwhelmed by uh, kind of a negative backlash <laughs> against him. Uh, I'm sorry, my dog's oh, that's name okay. for Phil Rizzuto is making her present felt. So. She was on last time, too. We love yeah, dogs. I know. We Scooter love dogs here. Scooter we likes to get her two cents in. Good. Oh, if we- I scratch behind her ear, she'll leave us alone. <laughs> we encourage it. We love dogs here. Uh, my question about Jeff is: is he's been a little, he's been a little overwhelmed by kind of a, kind of a killing the messenger kind of a thing because he's kind of exposed some things about uh, Rod, uh, Walter Payton's life that I think some people aren't ready to believe. You've done the same thing in Mickey Mantle's in your Mickey Mantle book, except for maybe some of this stuff we've known a little bit. People have been maybe desensitized to the idea of Mickey Mantle uh, being drunk and things like that. Um, and I guess just I'm thinking about the two books and how they do basically the same thing and how Jeff has had such a rough time with critics and people who aren't maybe necessarily taking the opportunity to read the whole book before they make their conclusions. And then there's your book that's been really kind of praised as this great American piece of journalism. Why do you think Mickey Mantle fans are okay with this book, whereas it seems like Walter Payton fans are killing Jeff Perriman, where the the stories are similar in a way. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the excerpt or Jeff's book, though I think very highly of him as a reporter, and I certainly will um, look forward to seeing it and reading it. Um, So I, I really can't explain why there would be a difference, because I don't know what, if anything, the difference is in what we attempted to do. Um, The one thing I will say is that I I met a guy in Philly, um, Vinny, 
uh, Vinny from Philly, which is, as somebody pointed out to me, limited it to about 500,000 <laughs> different guys. And uh, he said to me, you got behind the legend without destroying the myth. <laughs> and I wasn't first sure at first that he said without destroying the myth or the myth. And um, it would have made sense either way, just as you know, a lot of people think the title of this book is The Lost Boy rather than The Last Boy, which is what it really is. But you know what? It doesn't bother me because both things were sort of equally true. Um, I didn't set out to try to destroy Mickey Mantle. I wanted to explain why and how he destroyed himself and to do it with um, a compassionate and thorough eye that... Um, you know, uh, I didn't use, and as I said this up front in the book, I didn't use every story of every pub crawl or every, I didn't chase down leads of women who spent the evening with him. Um, I don't really have much interest in that, to tell you the truth. That he was a womanizer and that he is not the only one in baseball history, you know, no kidding. Um, that he drank too much, no kidding. Um, you know, what was interesting to me was the 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 fact of the alcoholism that he was suffering and that it was unrecognized because there was no education and nobody knew in the 1950s how alcohol affected um, an alcoholic's brain and the biochemistry of that brain differently. So yeah, some other guys could go out and get soused and drink just the same amount as Mickey and you know, they, they'd be okay maybe, you know, not to do it the next night. But, um, and I don't think he drank every night in the 50s either, by the way. Um, but, you know, in an alcoholic's brain, um, it's different. I mean, think of the difference between uh, what Mantle dealt with coming to New York as this, you know, raw-boned rube in uh, 1951 and Josh Hamilton today. You know, Josh Hamilton's... Um, struggle with addiction has been um, well documented, as has the incredible uh, sensitivity um, and intelligence of the people running the Texas Rangers who figured out that it really would be okay to spray, um, if you know one needs to spray something, uh, ginger ale rather than bad champagne all over the, the locker room after winning the pennant, because they understand now in ways that nobody did, again, in Mantle's era, that even the contact of, an, you know, the, of alcohol on the skin of somebody who is an alcoholic can relapse. So, um, you know, players today, um, if they're able to avail themselves of the knowledge and of the help, and not every drug addict or alcoholic can. I mean, Mickey didn't ask for help until he hit bottom, and he didn't hit bottom for a long time. He didn't hit bottom until 1994, and he had been diagnosed, as he told me personally, uh, with cirrhosis in 1983. So that's an awful long time to keep acting that self-destructively, and what that's testimony to is not that he was a weak human being or a terrible human being, but it's testimony to just how difficult, how pernicious, uh, demonic the illness of alcoholism really is, alcoholism, alcoholism and addiction. You've now written critically acclaimed now, uh, books about 
Mickey Mantle, and Sandy Koufax. You mentioned Josh Hamilton. Are there any uh, contemporary baseball players or athletes that you would be interested in doing a project like this about in the future? Well, you know, Steve, it's a, it's a good question, and I'd be very happy for any suggestions anybody has. I think the problem that writers run into, and it's, it's a real dilemma, I mean, dead people are kind of easier to write about it, to put it bluntly, um, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a, a fact of life and death. Um, and I don't mean that because they're not there to talk back or anything. It's because enough time has passed for history um, to clarify itself. You know, you know, Connor did a really good job on uh, a book about Derek Jeter that's out this year, but you don't know how, and nor did he know how, that uh, this season was going to go. You know, everybody was writing Jeter off at the beginning of the yeah. season. Um, you know, and uh, Richard Ben Kramer, who I think is the greatest sports, you know, uh, biographer around, did, did uh, DiMaggio, um, is struggling with uh, uh, Alex Rodriguez because you don't know how the story ends. You know, are they going to be guys who hang on and hang on and we end up looking, like, looking at them like Willie Mays, you know, staggering under a, 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 foul, a fly ball in center field in the playoffs? Or is one of these people, um, present-day people, going to have the presence of mind and the um, sense of selfhood that Koufax had, by the way, to be able to walk away at the top and say, you know, I've had enough. I don't need to live this out over and over again. People were saying to me the other day, well, Rusa quit. Can you imagine he quit? Yeah, all power to him. <laughs> what a better way to go out. And how many people have, you know, both the financial wherewithal and uh, the personal security to walk away at the top? Most athletes, unfortunately, do not. It was the whole premise of Bill Bradley's book about life on the run where he wanted to experience the um, decline and erosion of his skills so that he wouldn't later have the same thing that a Sugar Ray Leonard or God knows how many other guys in every sport have, which is, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to be, except what I used to be, so I think I'll go try to be it again even though I can't. So I don't know is the answer. <laughs> the sportscasters are here with Jane Levy, the author of The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. Uh, just for the last couple minutes with you here, I want to talk a little bit about the Best American Sports Writing Series. And I think the very first question I want to ask you about it is, did you enjoy doing it? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, of course, Glenn Stout, who's the series um, editor, has the real tough job of going through hundreds and maybe thousands of submissions. Um, I had the easier deal, which was only to read about somewhere between 75 and 100 of them. Um, you know, it was instructive to me. Remember, I started out as an old newspaper hound. Um, you know, when, when people still went to newspapers and there were still sounds when you pressed on a key. Um, and, and, you know, that world is gone. And it was very much reflected in what Glenn sent me to read, there were almost no newspaper stories hmm. among the submissions. There were um, many tough choices to make, um, and places that really good sports writing is uh, taking root, 
which is kind of funny, a kind of funny uh, metaphor because it's taking root in cyberspace where, you know, where nothing's tangible. Um, but there's also no uh, length issues there. And so you can just keep writing. Nobody cuts from the bottom in cyberspace. Um, and uh, so I was really interested, saddened to see how little of the really good writing that, um, you know, he presented me with came out of newspapers. Um, lots from ESPN.com. I bet you start seeing stuff from Grantland next year, which I'm doing some work for. Um, it's Bill Simmons' new website, right. and I think they're doing a great job. Um, uh, even though they employ me, they're doing a great job. Um, Kate, and Kate, um, I'm sorry. Uh, nope. I, th I, I think that... Um, you know, you can't kill sports writing. You can try, but people haven't been able to do it yet. I just wanted to mention that Katie Baker from Grantland is going to be on this very same podcast that you are. So, cool. How about that? Excellent. Two Grantland people. Uh, you know, I, f I feel like this edition, and we spent a whole month about five months ago, kind of going through this Best American Sports Writing series with our listeners. And it seems like the thing that stands out about this edition, other than the, the rest, is really the full conversion to the d acceptance of the dot-com pieces. It seems like there's way more dot-com pieces in here than any other uh, version of the book. Um, any particular reason for that, or was it just you just picked well, the best stories? Well, I can't stories? really tell you whether it's you know, completely representative of the trend um, in sports writing and sports journalism, which is, is toward you know, the dot-com world, or, or whether that's what, you know, what Glenn, since I didn't see everything he had to choose from, right. um, you know, whether, the, whether that's what he happened to send me most of. I did kind of insist upon including a couple of the, um, you know, uh, print, I hate the way we use that because, you know, we shouldn't have to call ourselves print, but the print uh, stories, um, Sally Jenkins' column and Selena Roberts' column, uh, Nancy Hess's absolutely brilliant story about Mike Penner, the sports writer who um, uh, committed suicide after um, a failed um, attempt to reconcile his, his uh, gender identification issues. Um, so there's great writing being done. What, what astonished and surprised me most was how much of it is uh, the, how much of the, per the large percentage was about, you know, extreme sports and extreme sports getting more and more extreme all the time. It's not enough to run a marathon or an ultra marathon or, or a triathlon. Now it has to be, you know, a triathlon times 100 or, you know, 100 squared. I mean, some of the endeavors that people are taking on, I, I personally don't have enough time in my day. I don't know how people have all this time, and God knows I wouldn't call this leisure time. I don't know what you call it, but there seems to be this need to challenge um, themselves with, you know, we used to talk about made-for-TV sports events. Well, these aren't made-for-TV but they're made for the sense of creating a challenge for people who, oh, sorry, Scooter, for people who obviously um, don't feel that anything else in their lives provides that. And I found that fascinating. I mean, it's one way of measuring how far we've come from the, you know, from the caveman days. 
if you're sitting around a cave worrying about, you know, a mastodon or what you're going to have to hunt to feed your family in the cold cave, you know, you're not going to be sitting around thinking, going, hmm, let me see if I can run 37 miles above altitude and then swim two miles, you know, at the bottom of the Grand Canyon in the same day. You know, I mean, it, it, it's... It, so I, I think it's an interesting indice of um, how, in a way, complacent um, certain parts of our, our of our pop- population have become. It's like they need something um, to challenge them. I, I, you know, I, I feel personally frustrated by it. I, I, you know, okay, go out and chop a tree for God's sake. You know, do something that's actually productive. Uh, I, I always. I drive home up Connecticut Avenue here, and I there's a Gold's Gym, and um, depending on the weather, you know, it changes. But there's usually a the glass, the plate glass facing the, the street is usually completely covered over with sweaty condensation. So you know that you know. I mean, I don't know how you would calculate. You need a sports physiologist to calculate how many. Uh, miles of horsepower, you know, of energy are being produced by those people on the treadmills and the ellipticals and the, you know, uh, bikes and all that stuff. But, God, what, you know, people talk about harnessing energy from other sources. How about people harnessing that energy for something else? (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of harnessing energy, there is a piece in here about hockey fighting. And that's really interesting based on the summer that we had with the death of the three hockey enforcers and uh, people like Real Sports, I, I know recently did a piece on that. Uh, based on everything that's happened with hockey fighting, would you change your mind about including this? Do you think that it's even more important because of what's happened? Uh, w- d- has that story stuck out to you a little bit based on the news that has occurred probably since you picked these stories out? Yeah, I'm feeling um, really good that I picked that one out. I don't think that the author was particularly, um, you know, condoning, uh, you know, lethal conduct on the ice. Um, but he was certainly able to articulate a, a, a turn of uh, mind um, that is that, that, you know, officials, both in hockey and in football, are now straining to change. The game they created, they're now saying, oh, whoops, we really can't play it this way. It's not going over too big with advertisers. We better take the goons out of gooniness. Um, you know, and the players are going, well, how, how am I supposed to do that? This is how you taught me to check. This is how you taught me to hit. This is why you, you know, pay me to, you know, pin somebody against the board with my shoulder and knock them to the ground. But um, I think the concussion story uh, today and the suicides, I wrote about um, uh, Mike Flanagan's suicide, the Baltimore Orioles pitcher who I covered um, for the Washington Post not long but and long ago. But I was very um, moved uh, and, and continue to be by, you know, we think of, as just as I said about Mickey earlier, we think of these people, we judge them by their exteriors, by their accomplishments, by their muscles, by their brawn. We don't see, you know, the people inside who are scared or depressed or don't know what to do when it's over. 
and, you know, and when they can't think anymore, when their fingers don't move, when they're, you know, when their legs don't walk, you know, and, and so I'm very glad I um, included that story, and I, I think it's a real, um, uh, I mean, I think, I think the writer did a great job, and I think it, it's important to have in there. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I do want to ask you before I let you go, did, have you uh, changed your mind or considered changing your mind at all about Twitter? Nope. <laughs> nope. I, I was talking somewhere. I don't remember where. I got a little carried away with myself, a little, you know, full of myself, I guess you'd say, and said something about leading my life, uh, you know, on the premise that there is nothing important or worthy that you can say in 140 characters. Um, now, that may make me, you know, um, the stick, stick in the mud, oh, you know what, um, but... You know, I believe in elucidation, even if my dog doesn't. <laughs> uh, I believe that things need to be put in context and given explanation. Scooter, stop it. I'm so sorry. It's all right. Um, Gives it character. But, uh, um, you know, and I, you can't do that. You know, I mean, what meaningful can you say? I mean, there's stuff about, you know, athletes tweeting from the from the end zone, give me a break, you know, put the technology down, guys, you know, it's just, uh, my dog could say something useful in 140 characters, or what? <laughs> you just did. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, I can't, that's not what I do well, and maybe, you know, I know people write haiku, I know all sorts of people are, you know, just like they're using, you know, they brushes technology to do great art, um, with the you know those those uh, things where you can paint with your finger on a like 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 we did when we were kids in nursery school finger painting only on a on, a, on an iPad right um, you know so I'm not insensible to change and the positive ways that that an artist or a craftsman can employ it it's just not my strength I suppose if if what you needed to do is tweet that World War Three had begun, maybe that would be a useful thing to be able to do. But it would also be a horrible one to do. <laughs> not useful to tweet that the last boy is, or the last boy, I did it, what you said, people do. It's not useful to tweet that the last boy is now on paperback or that, you know, the Best American Sports Writing Series is available. You don't like the promotion aspect of it? Well, I think that that's really what it's become. Just like, you know, a, you know all the... Um, celebrities who allegedly write their Twitter feeds. I mean, come on, we all know that some PR guy is doing that or writing their blog or whatever. It's just more smoke and mirrors. Sure, the publisher would really like me to be, you know, blogging and tweeting and <laughs> I, I don't know what else. Yeah, you know, if, if, if I'm, <laughs> I suppose I'm supposed to go out and say, please buy my book, Christmas is Coming. <laughs> I don't know how many characters that is. That um, might fit. And, I, and I, I think it's pretty funny that I have followers. I feel it's a little bit like, you know, um, an Ionesco play or something. Um, I have followers, but I don't, they're not following anything because I haven't written a word <laughs> or, a sentence, or, or a syllable. Nothing. Well, they're waiting <laughs> eagerly for the, <laughs> for the moment. 
Yeah, uh, I do take a long time to write. It's true. <laughs> so they, they just they just have belief, you know. They're just they think the moment might happen someday, and they're they're waiting. They're kind of like outside of your window with the boombox. Uh, I'll let my dog do it. <laughs> All right, the sportscasters. Uh, blessed to have Jane Levy on the show for the second time. Uh, two things: the last boy, Mickey Mantle, the end of America's Childhood, now in paperback. And how many how many characters is Hanukkah and Christmas? Hanukkah and Christmas. Well, I don't know how to spell Hanukkah. Well, it's because there's probably five different ways. You can use H-A-N-U-K-A-H. That's probably how I would have spelled it. Yeah, Hanukkah yeah. and Christmas. That would fit. It'd be probably, okay. Yeah, that would fit. So, All by right. the lost boy, uh, <laughs> again, by the last boy, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood, or the Best American Sports Writing, Jane Levy 2011 edition for Christmas or Hanukkah, and then tweet your friends about it. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure, as always. Anytime, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Take care. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leon Lett, Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Real quick, Hushmanzada's in that. Uh, I believe the Raiders just picked him up to pair him back with Carson Palmer again. So Yeah, instead of T.O. Instead of T.O. Yeah. Right, they kind of had their choice there of which former Carson Palmer target they would go with. and Which is strange because it didn't really work in... <laughs> I mean, I guess uh, Hushmanzada did, but not the Hushmanzada T.O. Well, I guess what they want to do is they want to use Hushmanzada as, I guess, a slot guy. Yeah. You know, because they got some speedy guys on the outside, yeah, obviously, a lot of speedy with guys, yep. Ford and uh, Dominique Hayward Bay. Did I say that right? Not Dominique. Dar- uh, Darius. No. Maybe uh, it is it Dominique? I don't know. Hayward Bay. Yeah, DHB. Uh, <laughs> on the outside there, they have plenty of speed, so they're hoping that Palmer can be kind of a possession across the middle kind of a guy. Or Hushmanzada. Darius Hayward Bay. Darius Hayward Bay. They, they should just be he should, Carson Palmer's main job should just be to hand the ball off anyway. Absolutely. All right. Uh, first thing I wanted to bring up is I guess what I want to say here is pay attention to your league rules. <laughs> because Don and I are in an experts league that we've been doing very well in. Okay. And we screwed ourselves last week. I might not know this story. Because we were playing Jay Clemens. Okay. okay. So obviously we're playing the guy who invited us. We want to have a good showing. And Saturday night, Don and I went to the Sabres game. And we had a nice night. Sabres screwed us, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. We had a good time. Met with some friends. Watched the game. Whatever. Well, I knew that this team was going to have bye week trouble. Because this week was trouble for this us. This week was going to be trouble for us anyway. So when I got home, I started to put some moves together. Aaron Rodgers was on a bye. Our backup was Bradford, who was not going to play. So I put in a claim for Bradford. I put in Feely for Bradford, which would have been a really nice claim. Yeah. Uh, we also had uh, Heinz Ward injured. We had. Um, couple other guys, maybe questionable. Joseph Adai. Right. Um, and we just didn't have anyone on the bench to fill if Joseph Adai 
didn't play. So I made another claim for Joseph Adai. So I had two claims. I processed them. And little did I find out that the, the claims wouldn't go through till November 2nd. <laughs> yeah. So I screwed us. The, the rules clearly state, they weren't tricking us in any way. The rules clearly state that waiver claims can be made on Wednesday and Saturday. And I waited too oh, long. Oh, he does have two periods for he it. He does have two periods. Okay, because I thought I put some in too. And Saturday. Maybe not. Or maybe I got outbid. Maybe you got outbid. Either way, we ended up with nothing in two of our spots. He ended up with 25 points in that first spot from Eli Manning, 31 from LaShawn McCoy, and that was basically all it took to beat us. We had the Titans D who gave us 16 points, helped us out a little bit. But it was going to be a rough week. It was going to be a rough week because we built this team around Aaron Rodgers, really. And he wasn't going to be there. Feely would, let's say we had Feely. Uh, in this league, Feely would have scored us. Um, he should be easy to find because there's not a lot of you know, players that are available. On, yeah. Uh, where are you, Feely? Come on, help me out here. There he is. Feely would have scored us 10 points. So that would have got us to 86. And then if we would have picked up the player that I was going to pick up for a die, which was... Yeah, who? I mean, this Donald is, Brown. Oh, he's still available? Yeah, Donald Brown was available, and he scored nine points. So we would have had 19 extra points. Wouldn't have been enough to win. Still would have lost. But the point is, pay attention to your league rules. <laughs> yeah, There's a reason... So. There's a reason that commissioners spend so much time putting the league rules together. And this also came up in another league. We have a rule in one of our leagues that buy players are not allowed to play in games. If somebody starts a buy player, whether by mistake or by indifference, it's my job to take that buy player out for a suitable replacement just so that people can't tank it. It's so that... Yeah, I've been in leagues like this before, too. It's and so that it's fair to everybody. People will complain. People playing that player will complain. Uh, you shouldn't protect them from their own mistakes. My argument is... That's random. Well, right. And my argument with that is, too, you're not protecting necessarily... You are protecting him from their own, their own stupidity or whatever, but more so, you want to protect the integrity of the league. You don't want somebody that you need to win a game... You need to lose a game to win one because Just somebody else didn't put players doesn't in. pay yeah. attention. And right. the guy playing the delinquent player, that's random. Right. But that affects everyone else in the division Absolutely. that are fighting for a playoff. So I want to be fair to more teams. Maybe I'm not being fair to the one team, but I'm being fair to the more more teams. I think by taking and, and you know what? He had no idea about this rule, the player who was complaining. And I send out a seven-page Word document, and he just didn't read it. And that happens every year. You know, we have an injury replacement thing that we do in some of our rules that we should probably talk about on Fantasy sometime. Not today because we have other stuff, but there's a rule that you cannot do it for flex. People constantly do it for flex. And it's like if you just read the rule, you wouldn't make that mistake. Right. And I'm a commissioner. I get pissed off when people don't pay attention to to the rules. And I got caught doing the same thing this week in one of our leagues. So I apologize <laughs> to everyone that's in the philanthropist and company league. We didn't mean to do it. It was a mistake. We would have lost anyway. And we would have lost anyway. So And to be 
honest, I mean, what would happen again in a league that deep? There was like, if you look at the projected scores, like that ESPN will show, there's only like ten guys available on the waiver wire that are projected to even have points. Because right, it's just so it's such slim there, and it was so slim. I was going to pick up AJ Feely. Right, you know, I was just going to do it just because he was a guaranteed player. Yeah, you know, Ho- hopefully and, better than a zero, which he yeah. was. So, my first item this week for five on fantasy is a question I had, kind of rhetorically. I kind of asked my brother who doesn't play fantasy, but would you rather have drafted CJ two K this year or Jamal Charles? And I kind of made the argument. Maybe I'll let you answer first, but. Uh, Chris Johnson's been terrible is basically my backing behind this. So would you rather have right now, would would you rather go back and draft Chris Johnson or Jamal Charles? I would rather draft Jamal Charles because he got injured at a point where there was still people available that I could pick off to help my team. And in this Chris Johnson frustration is just never ending. That that was my argument kind of too. If you drafted Jamal Charles, I believe he got hurt, what, week two or week three? So you've been... You're probably in trouble in that league, but at the same time, you've been trying to fix that for five weeks. Um, you would have looked more at a guy like DeMarco Murray than somebody else would have. You, maybe uh, Jackie Battles had two or three straight decent weeks. Whereas if you have Chris Johnson, you're not dropping him. He has no trade value. I mean, if you're going to trade him, you're going to get next to nothing for him. I've seen trade offers of uh, like Victor Cruz for Chris Johnson. People have just given up on him. So at this point, I think I almost I have drafted Charles in a league, and my team's actually finally starting to turn around. It was terrible in the beginning. I think I'm only like three and five now, but still my team looks kind of solid. Maybe I can claw my way into like it's the just last a, playoff spot. This nightmare with with uh, with uh, Johnson, it just won't end, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for it to end. And I think it's just a better like. Charles got hurt. You knew it. You can drop you him. You went on IR. You drop him. You move on, and you go from there. Yeah. The Chris- what do you do with Chris Johnson? Right. It's like a bad. How do you resolve that? You know right. how how do you move? How do you resolve it? How do you move on? How do you get to a point where you can help your team? It's almost impossible. I mean, if someone asked me for my opinion, I think you have to hold on to him just in the hopes that he has one or two games like he used to, just because you're not going to get anything for him. Whereas with Charles, maybe you would have dropped. Like I said, the argument I would have made is that hopefully you would have fixed the, the Charles injury by this point. Yeah. All right. Starts and sits. All right. My first sit. Well, let's revisit last week real quick. Um, I was kind of in the middle last week. My sit at quarterback was Ryan Fitzpatrick. Basically, my argument was I knew he was going to have a decent game. Uh, there was just a bunch of guys I like better. Some of those guys I like better, like Phillip Rivers would probably have been one of them, didn't perform better. Drew Brees might not have performed better. Uh, the guys you would have expected to maybe didn't. And Fitzpatrick ended up with a decent game, 262 yards with two scores and a pick. Um, my running back sit was my most wrong prediction of the year so far, and that was Steven Jackson. If anyone out there actually sat him based on that, I apologize. He had his best game of the year, 159 yards, two TDs. My logic wasn't that I don't like Steven Jackson, just that I thought the Saints would be so far ahead that they wouldn't be able to use him the way they normally would, and that never happened. And my wide receiver sits were all Denver wide receivers, which is like the no-brainer one, and that, that'll continue going forward for the rest of the year. And Deshaun Jackson, which was actually a fairly good call. He only had three catches for 31 yards. 
I believe Jason Avant and uh, Jeremy Macklin have much nicer games, and McCoy was highly involved in the passing and running game. Yeah, so, McCoy had one hell of a week, huh? <clears throat> yeah. My first sit this week is Big Ben. Um, obviously, like we always say, if you have him, you're probably not sitting him, but he is playing Baltimore. They're the number three pass defense in the league, so temper your expectations. Uh, I have him in a league with Cam Newton, so I don't have a choice but to start him, but there's guys out there that – there might be better starts this week. What if you have him with Josh Freeman against the Saints? I don't know. That's a. I would probably take Big Ben just because part of it is their inability to run. I think they just kind of have to throw. Um, I'll jump ahead right now to my sit. My running back sit is also Mendenhall. I expect Pittsburgh to win this game, but it's not. It's more a, a thought about how inept Baltimore's offense has been than how their defense has been solid. I think they're three against the pass and the run. I think they're going to have to throw. I think if I had to make a pick, I think Big Ben has a better game than Mendenhall. Schaub or Schaub versus Cleveland, which is also a tough matchup, or Roethlisberger? I'd probably go Schaub there. Uh, Castle against Miami? I don't like Matt Castle at all. I, I don't know. I don't think I. That's the type of thing I don't think I'd ever sit him over. Big Matt ben. Ryan against Indy? That's an interesting one because there you're kind of – you're assuming that Atlanta is going to blow them out one way or the other. It's just are they going to do it on the ground or in the air? I might start Matt Ryan over Big Ben. Andy Dalton against Tennessee? Uh, probably not. I'd probably still go with Ben. But Hasselback against Cincinnati? No, I think Cincinnati's defense is good. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, he he's just he might be a top five fantasy quarterback at this point. I just Sh- should we do some running backs? Yeah, go you're, ahead. You're going to sit Mendenhall, I'm going to sit Mendenhall. Right? Yeah, I just don't okay, think he's Okay, Michael Bush versus Denver, assuming McFadden's, McFadden's out. out. I'd rather have Bush. Sean Green versus the Bills. I'd probably rather have Sean Green. Assuming he plays LeGarrette Blunt against the Saints. Oh, uh, that's a tough one. I, I might take Mendenhall still there. Chris Johnson against Cincinnati. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's that bad. Yeah, probably Mendenhall still. Uh, Kevin Falk against the Giants. If it's a PPR league, I'd be tempted to play Falk there. Assuming he's healthy, Mark Ingram. Huh. That might still be Mendenhall, but that's more of a numbers game than anything. Just there's too many Saints. Um. Okay, that's about it. Maybe one more. How about... Mike Tolbert, assuming he's healthy against Green Bay. I think if Tolbert's healthy, he might be the only one that is healthy there. I I think I would definitely start Tolbert. I know they're a solid run team, but he catches the ball too. I I like Tolbert a lot more if he's the the starter. All right, let me get some starts in. First, last week, my starter quarterback was Hasselbeck. He didn't give you what you wanted probably if you started him. He He didn't do anything wrong, but he only passed for 228 yards, one TD, no picks. My starter running back was probably a disappointment although if you were in a ppr it was pierre thomas he had 23 yards a touchdown and four catches for one for 11 yards so if you're in a ppr one that's four five six seven and six thirteen not what you were looking for there at all if it wasn't a ppr it was you know even worse so sorry about that one and my start at wide receiver worked out for sure because it's maybe even more a tight end start depending on how your league that was uh 
Fred, uh, Fred Davis. Davis. He had eight catches for 94 yards. Yeah, so PPR, that's, that's huge a nice in a PPR. Uh, okay in a non-PPR. Uh, all right, this week at quarterback, I'm going to go with Phillip Rivers. He plays Green Bay. Green Bay is 31 against the pass. Let's not forget, sometimes when you play against a team like Green Bay, you assume that the defense is as good as their offense. It's not. Right. They're extremely shaky against the pass. 31st, they have the one good corner. If you stay away from him and throw all around the field otherwise, Phillip Rivers uh, should do you pretty well. Uh, and since you did running back, I'll do running back as well. Mine is Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis. I know that Kevin Falk is back this week, so be careful here. This is going to depend on you know, where you are with buys and things like right, that. Right. But uh, he's playing the 27th, 27th against the run, the Giants. So if you have a chance to start Green-Ellis or Falk, they might both be good plays depending on how deep your league is and where your, position, where your team is in terms of buys. And I'll just finish mine out. My start at wide receiver is Marcus Colston. And really all the Saints. I, I think there's no way they don't bounce back. They're at home against Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is 26th against the pass. I think this team is going to be pissed that they let their te- the fans down the way that they did. And I just think they're going to bounce back. I can't remember two games as bad as this in the Sean Payton era. They usually play really well after a loss. So I like Colston to be a number one wide receiver and put up number one wide receiver numbers this week against the uh, Bucks. Yeah, and you said last week about the Eagles, and uh, we'll visit that in the pick four, that they're kind of desperate. Not that the Saints need to be desperate, but they're getting pretty close with three conference losses. I think this if they want to win the division, they have to win this game. Yeah, so I mean... They it, can't be sitting 0-2 against the Buccaneers with four conference losses. Right. I think it's a must-win game for the Saints. Okay, my last wide receiver, and let me go back real quick. Uh, I said all Denver wide receivers were sits. Eric Decker did, I believe, have a touchdown. A real late touchdown. To so butt he might have had a him. decent day for you, right. maybe around 14, 15 points. But that was real late. But, yeah, so I, I stand by that that was a good call. Uh, my wide receiver sit this week, this is just kind of a gut call. Um, his matchup is great against the Colts. I'm going to say Roddy White. I think if you start him... A, he's coming off an oh no, he's not coming off an injury, but he's banged up. Um, he's I ex- healthier. What's that? He's healthier. He's healthier, right? Uh, but Julio Jones is back; should be back from injury, so that should take away a few of his targets. And like I said when making the point earlier, I just don't expect this to be a game where they need to throw a lot. I think they win this game with a lot of Michael Turner and uh, maybe even Jason Snelling. It's the Colts, it isn't going to be a shootout. And if it is, then I'm wrong, but I'll be shocked. So I'm going to say, Roddy White, temper your expectations. All right. Last thing for today, a quick update of the Sportscasters Fantasy Football Listener League on NFL.com. Don and I were both victorious last week. I beat Avatarish Jackson 101.72 to 80.66. Pretty low-scoring game there for this league. Uh, and Don defeated... Where are you, Don? You defeated the Nova Scotia Nailers, 144.9 to 126.76. My team's on a roll. The Pittsburgh Feelers lost their second straight game. Uh, Don moved up two spots into a playoff spot, uh, having the tiebreaker edge over what you're talking about, Hillis. So in Don's division right now, we have Pittsburgh Feelers at 6-2, and two, uh, the Penn State team at 5-3. and three. And then a tie for third, Don Lake Sports, and what you're talking about, Hillis at 4-4, four and four, with Don having the edge, 
which is points four, uh, which are in the thousands in this league, high scoring league. But it is. We have the two flexes. In lots this of roster spots. Yep. yep. And uh, at the end of, uh, still not out of it though. Avatars Jackson just one game out of a playoff spot in last place in that division. In Steve's division, I am uh, officially in first place at five and three, tied with Gordon Fishsticks, who are about about a hundred points behind me for the tiebreaker there. Uh, third place is Nova Scotia Nailers. They're four and four, and then the uh, Ca- Cardiac Cats and Manning Up are two teams who are in a lot of trouble. Uh, they're going to have to put some winning streaks together if they're going to make the playoffs. So that's where we're at with the. This might be the favorite team I have as far as just the makeup from top to bottom. I, I love my team in this division. I like this the league. big rosters in this league. Yeah, I do too. And I have, I mean, my flexes this week are basically uh, Greg Jennings and Mario Manningham. So, I mean, I, I feel like I have really strong flexes. Or if you want to count uh, Fitzgerald or Stevie Johnson. But either way, I, I really like my roster in this league. And finally, it's getting rewarded with some wins. All right, that's it for Five on Fantasy. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our last interview of the night, Katie Baker from Grantland.com. Our next guest is from Pennington, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. After college, she spent six years working for Goldman Sachs, where she was a member of the Asset Management Division. She has contributed to Deadspin.com and has provided columns for New York Times Magazine, Gawker, and other publications. Last summer, she left New York City and moved to San Francisco, where she is a full-time writer for Grantland.com. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented and accomplished Katie Baker. How are you doing today, Katie? Hi, I'm um, fine, thank you. How you know, are you? You know, we were doing a story earlier. We were talk. We do this thing called Three Things, and we kind of talk about how uh, it's just our way of kind of talking about things that happened in the week. And we talked about how Mark Brunel like burned through fifty million dollars. Maybe you, he could have used you. And, you know, <laughs> it, when you were in the asset management division, you know, he could have used a hand before he burned through his fifty million. And now he's got to go work as a pharmaceutical rep next year or something. Yeah, I mean, I um. I always used to joke, though, even though my job was um, as a private wealth manager, so um, giving advice to clients with, you know, $100 million, my own my own bank account is always shambles. So um, <laughs> I, could, I could tell a millionaire what to do, but, you know, I couldn't pay my own bills on time. <laughs> Maybe that's why I left the industry. <laughs> that could be it. Well, uh, don't feel too bad, Mark Brunel. He doesn't know what he's doing with money either. So and he had a lot of it. So uh, anyway, we talked to you over the summer, and we talked a little bit about weddings. And that was fun, and we also talked about hockey. And we kind of talked about how you were going to be the one who was going to have to make hockey stick out in what is a lot of different content at Grantland. And I'm wondering, kind of a month and a half into the season, how you think you're doing as far as making sure that hockey is a relevant thing to read and write about on Grantland? Um, well, I mean, I think one of the, the things that's, um, you know, a challenge when you're writing about hockey is there, it has um, such a incredibly passionate fan base, um, you know, and it's also a sport that for 
years, um, you know, almost probably over 10 years or so, has kind of gotten the short stick, um, you know, with TV coverage and that kind of thing. So um, a lot of people, you know, with the NBA lockout, and I think just with, uh, you know, the league kind of um, coming into its own a little bit in the last couple of years are starting to notice hockey a little bit. Um, so, you know, one, you know, I've been trying to write a column that, you know, people that don't necessarily, you know, know everything that's happened over the last decade or, you know, last couple of years can, can enjoy, but also isn't going to leave, you know, real, you know, hardcore hockey fans feeling bored or feeling like it's, you know, not bringing anything to the table. So, you know, I try to, I try to balance that, you know, as much as I can. And it's been really fun. I mean, it's, it was a little intimidating at first and, um, you know, I've obviously been learning a lot, meeting some cool people and other writers and, um, you know, speaking to, to some people. So it's been fun for me as well. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, improving myself throughout the season and um, bringing some, some good stuff to the table. You mentioned that the NBA is out and tonight would have been opening night for them. Instead, they're off fighting somewhere. Do you, you mentioned it. Do you view it as like, do you view this period where there's no NBA as a really important time for hockey writers, not only on Grantland, but everywhere? Like, do you think the door is open? And it's not just the writers where there's pressure, but the, all the, the broadcast partners of the league versus. And do you think this is a time where everyone really needs to make sure that we're telling everyone what's great about the sport? Do you think that it, it's open right now? People are going to be looking for something to do on weeknights? Yeah, I mean. I think, you know, th- there's definitely been a lot of conversation about that, and, y- you know, there are hockey fans who say it's a little bit of, you know, it's been over-exaggerated a little bit, and that might be true, but, you know, when it comes down to it, on a, you know, Tuesday night in November, um, if there's a good hockey game on and, you know, and the league's doing a good enough job at promoting it, people will watch. And I think when people start watching hockey and, you know, the... I mean, I'm, I'm like a huge fan of the broadcast situation. Um, I know a lot of people wish that the league would partner w- or, you know, had, had partnered with ESPN, but I think at the time it was just um, this versus NBC deal was kind of the best thing that they had available, and it's a long-term deal. So I mean, you can kind of already see that they're putting more work into marketing the players. Um, they One kind of random little thing is like, they put the numbers on front of their helmets because right. they want cameramen to be able to focus in on them when they're on the bench. And it's like a little thing like that, but if you're watching, you know, if you're watching hockey and um, you don't know who anyone is, and it's a little hard with their helmets and all that, um, I think they're just trying to, to market individual players a little bit more. Um, but you know, uh, not everyone who's a basketball fan is going to like hockey, and that's fine. Um, and, and you know, hockey also has its own potential labor situation coming up next year. So it's not like everything is, you know, all roses for them either. But, you know, any time they've got, you know, a little bit of a vacuum, you know, they got to take advantage of it as best they can. Let's talk about some things that have happened on the ice in the first, I don't know, most teams have played about about 10 games, 10 to 12, somewhere in that range. Uh, what has surprised you the most so far? Is it how good Edmonton's been? Is it how good Toronto's been, or is it something else? Um, I mean, Edmonton has, you know, you mentioned Edmonton. I mean, they've been great. They're so fun to watch. Um, you know, I think a lot of people expected that, 
in the next couple of years, um, they would have, you know, they would kind of come together. You know, when you have the number one draft pick tiers in a row, you you, you better you better right. show, have something to show for it. But um, you know, they've really been fun to watch. Um, their goaltending's been great, so that's been a surprise. I mean, I, I think I think a lot of people um, kind of on the other end. Um, Boston's been a little bit of a surprise to me. I mean, you know, people predicted the the usual Stanley Cup hangover and that kind of thing, but you know, they're they just you know, and they also haven't played. Um, you know, some Pittsburghs played like thirteen games. They played ten, but 10, yeah. you know, they just they, they haven't really seemed to come together um, in a huge way. Um, but again, you know, it's so early in the season; it's, it's hard to really um, crucify someone. And a lot of teams have been pretty streaky anyway. Like, as soon as, you know, Montreal, you know, fired their assistant coach, things were going terribly for them. And, you know, now they're on a winning streak since, since then. And, um, you know, but Edmonton has surprised me. Um, the Dallas Stars have been surprising to me. Um, I think they're actually, I think they're like one of the, like, top couple teams in the league right now. Yep, they're 8 and 3. Um, and, yeah, those have been kind of some of the bigger. Um, surprises, I think. I mean, the Maple Leafs have been, you know, I have Phil Kessel on my fantasy team, so Ooh, nice I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just waiting for his, I guess he, you know, he usually has a strong start. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, Phil Kessel and the Leafs. And yeah, he does usually have a, a fast start, but he could be a real streaky player. Do you think yeah. he's reached the point in the maturity of his game where he can continue this for 82 games? Or are you just expecting, like everyone else, they're, they're just the bottom to fall off for two or three <laughs> weeks and him not get a point? I mean, hopefully. You know, hopefully he'll, you know, he'll continue it. Um, he hasn't really shown any reason why he won't, you know, other than some of his past couple seasons. But, um, you know, I think, I think the Leafs are a good team. Um, and, you know... If, if their you know their goalie can can come you know they, they had kind of a sketchy concussion that they w- wouldn't call a concussion situation going on, um, but I mean yeah I mean I, I think Kessel like another I just was thinking another player that yes um, another surprise would probably be James Neal yeah um, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh and yep. it's like him and Kessel are I think like the top two goal scorers um, so far this year which I don't think too many people would have predicted. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I'd love to see you know Kessel kind of shake off some of the criticism that's that's lobbed his way, and you know hopefully he can. Well, Kessel's one of the great young American hockey stars out there right now, and it just so happens that today you posted an article about one of the great former American hockey stars, and that's someone that I grew up with, and Pat Lafontaine. And I have to tell you that you know growing up in Buffalo as a hockey fan. It didn't get much cooler than Pat LaFontaine. I mean, he was a guy that you could, just everything about him you could respect. The way that he raised his family, the way that he handled charity, the way that he presented himself on and off the ice. There's just so much to like about him. And you did a fascinating story about him and how he's coaching his own son. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about your experiences with Pat LaFontaine and kind of where you got the idea for this article and what you learned? Yeah, so... um so, I mean, first of all, I can, you know, echo what you have to say about, you know, being younger and just loving him. Um, I didn't tell him, I, I spoke with him for the article, and I didn't tell him this, but I really wanted to. But um, one of the very, I think, if not the very first thing that I ever bought on eBay back in, like, the late 90s when it started was 
Palafontaine autographed puck. <laughs> um, so, you know, he was, he was always a huge hero of mine. Um, obviously one of the, you know, really prominent American hockey players, um, kind of back in, in, in the early, like, first wave of, of American hockey stars. And, um, I mean, the story is basically that the, he, he has a 16 year old son who plays for the Long Island Royals, um, their midget national team. So it's like, I think they're like the number two ranked under 16 team in the country, something like that. Um, and he is, um, one of the coach, or he's the head coach. And the NHL network this season as sort of part of the increasing trend in, hockey, you know, reality documentary style programs, um, which, you know, as I said earlier, is kind of part of, I think, the big, you know, marketing and, and you know, push that they're doing to really make hockey players seem, you know, more relatable and that kind of thing. Right. Um, are following them around and doing an online, you know, webisodes, which are ultimately going to be part of, you know, a longer feature program. So I spoke to him about that. He was great. He talked about, you know, what it's like to coach his son and, um, you know, the growth of U.S. hockey, and he just is really such a class act. I mean, he just he just rode his bike with the assistant coach up to, I think, from New York to Toronto Whoa. to raise money for his charity. I mean, he's just, he's like the best guy. <laughs> now, did you say in the article that his son is going to play for the U.S., play in the USHL? Is that is that true? That's, it's um, not, I mean, maybe one day, but um, there's a kid on the team named Justin Bailey who okay. has been drafted by the USHL and he is the son of Carlton Bailey, who played for the Buffalo Bills. Oh. Um, so he got drafted. Uh, Pat said that someone he knew in the league told him about this kid. You know, he's got great size. You know, he's still 16, so he's still growing. But um, he's actually living with the LaFontaines on Long Island and, you know, playing on the team. And I think they, they're just trying to, you know, he could go to the USHL at this age, but I think that they want to develop him a little bit more first. You know, interestingly, Pat Kane... Uh, skipped skipped a year for the development team to live it with Pat Verbeek. So, oh, really? Yeah, Pat Kane did that one year, went and lived with Pat Verbeek in his basement and spent a year there. And, and the team that Pat Kane played for actually lost to the Buffalo team that Pat Kane left in the Nationals. So oh, kind of an interesting, yeah, interesting Buffalo hockey story there. But, um, okay, so I see. So... Uh, is Pat LaFontaine's son, you said he is considered a prospect for the USHL or maybe not? Or what, what, I what think do you so. See? I mean, I don't, you know, this guy, Justin Bailey, has already been, his rights have already been drafted by the team in Indianapolis. Um, I was just watching the the most recent webisode of, of this series, which is called um, Making, of, Making of a Royal. And he said, you know, he doesn't know yet if he's going to go to college, you know, go play in college or go play, you know, Canadian junior hockey right. or, I mean, I assume it's, you know, the USHL is probably, you know, out there as an option too. Um, so right now I think he's just happy to be on this team, trying to do the best he can. And, um, you know, I'm sure his father is thrilled that he hasn't <laughs> decided to go up to Canada or anything like that. Right. You know, just yet. Yeah, that's very cool. So, Another thing you've been doing on the website is you have a weekly kind of a mailbag and someone asked you or many people had asked you and you kind of answered how to pick out a hockey team if you don't have a favorite hockey team right now. Why don't you share with us some of the uh, 
some of the uh, ways that you would go about picking a new favorite team if you didn't have one. Maybe if you're one of these basketball people that we're talking yeah. about who are lost tonight, uh, flipping on the TNT, they can't find a basketball, so they stumble upon versus who should they root for and how should they go about picking that team? Well, I mean, you know, I will say one of the, you know, in my opinion, one of the first things is, you know, you should kind of look at, you know, obviously if you pick a local team, you're going to get more TV coverage and be able to watch more games. But, you know, beyond that, um, certain teams are, you know, get a little bit more national love by the networks. Um, you know, teams like Chicago, um, and Washington and Pittsburgh, the Rangers, although as a Rangers fan, I don't necessarily suggest rooting for the Rangers. <laughs> um, um, you know, I, could, I, I think, um, I don't have the link in front of me, but um, Steve Lepore, who runs the website uh, Puck the Media, did like a breakdown of, of how many times certain teams are, um, you know, are televised throughout the season. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. Another is, you know, just looking at, what you know? What stars you might like? I mean, I love teams like the Tampa Bay Lightning. They're not having a great season, you know, so far. But you know, they've got Steven Stamkos and um, Vinny Cavalier and Marty Saint Louis, and um, you know, I, I love I love that watching that team and the San Jose Sharks, where which is sort of my local team these days. They're great. They're they had a rough start, but you know, then they went on a successful road trip. Um, you know, so you can kind of look at like what teams are going to expect it to be good, or you know, your best bet is often going to be your local team if you really want to go all in. <laughs> Have you been <laughs> down to a game at the Shark Tank yet? Say, um, I have not yet. Okay, I'm hoping to go. I think I'm going to actually go down to um, my my boss bought uh, L.A. Kings tickets, season tickets. So I think I'm going to try to go down to an, an L.A. game sometime next week. Um, but then, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm staying out west for Thanksgiving, so I'm hoping to get some games in, you know, around then when I won't have, you know, as much crazy job stuff going on. Um, but I've heard it's, like, really fun. I mean, one thing I've been surprised at is how good their TV broadcast team is. You know, I'm kind of a – I guess I was kind of a snobby East Coaster with preconceived notions about what West Coast hockey coverage would be like, but they're, like, really great, and they're really fun to watch and listen to, so – you said you're a Rangers fan. Are you surprised to see that Sean Avery might be back in the lineup? Well, <laughs> I mean, when he got waived, um, you know, Sean Avery's a polarizing figure. I've always liked him. Um, you know, I think a lot of the criticism about him gets a little overblown just because he's more of a visible guy and, um, you know, people have their opinions. But, um, you know, I understood why he was waived. Um, but at the same time, he kind of he can provide a pretty good you know intangible uh, spark when he's when he's playing. So you know I understood the you know the fans. I don't know that I would necessarily send John Tortorella to the Connecticut Whales and <laughs> like their sign suggested, but um, you know I understood why they wanted Avery back. Um, I was a little surprised that they actually you know would reclaim him just because you know, more out of, like, a stubbornness thing than anything else. But, um, you know, and I'm not necessarily expecting to see him back in the lineup right away, particularly because, you know, they won the last game. But, um, you know, at least for uh, for HBO 24-7 purposes, what, you know, I'm hoping he'll, he'll be on the roster come December, that's for sure. 
you know, a lot of people have considered Chris Jury's time in New York to be a bit of a failure. Um, but I think that there's a real underrated aspect of his time there, and that's the contributions he made to the career of Ryan Callahan. Um, you can disagree or agree with that or not, but can you talk a little bit about how you've seen the progression of this uh, Western New York native's career kind of build in the last few years? I know he had a couple of goals the other night, um, but it, I would say that Drury, more than maybe anyone, uh, can be thanked for turning Callahan into what he is today, and that's a very important part of the Rangers team. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's actually a really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about, and you're a uh, your, you know, Western New York roots are showing, but, um, you know, Chris Drew, you know, is someone who, um, you know, kind of unfortunately was just, you know, the latest in a line of Rangers with, you know, big contracts, big names. Um, so I think, you know, fans were kind of quick to lump him in that way, but, you know, his, his leadership was, you know, is, um, in my opinion, always been great. Um, and then as for Ryan Callahan, um, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, for him to be the team captain, you know, in New York is, is a, a huge, um, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that, um, but he really brings it. You know, he's an aggressive player. He, I mean, watching him block shots is like one of, you know, I'm kind of like wincing, but also you right. can see exactly how he sparks his team. Um, you know, hopefully he won't break a bone like he did last year, but... Um, you know, he's really, he really leads by example. Um, he's, he can also contribute goals. And he, it's been really fun to watch him, you know, progress. He's not a particularly big player. Um, you know, and, you know, he's wearing the C above guys like Brad Richards, who, you know, is new to the team, so it's not like he necessarily deserves the C, but, you know, that's a lot of pressure on you. And he just seems to kind of game in and game out, handle that well. And, you know, I, I look forward to you know, just seeing what he can do for the rest of the season. What What are your thoughts about how uh, Richards has fit in? I know that the Rangers are a team that have spent a lot of money over the years and it hasn't always worked out. Is this one that you think is going to be one that will work out for the long term or one that you think they'll regret? I mean, I hope so. I, um, he, I think people are kind of getting all up in arms. Um, you know, a lot of people thought that he would help Gabrix, you know, re- regain his scoring touch. And, you know, the lines have been shuffled around a couple of times, but that's sort of what John Tortorella does. Like, the line shuffling doesn't really bother me. Um, but, I mean, Richards has looked good. You know, he he passes the puck well. He's a good playmaker. He can score. Um, you know, I'm not ready to, you know, say he hasn't done his job. Um, you know, when you get a big contract like that, people are going to start doing the math and, you know, calculating how much you're getting paid per goal. But, you know, the contract doesn't really bother me. Um, I think people kind of micro-analyze contract numbers in the NHL more than they do in any other sport. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, it, it's been like 10 games, and... They've, you know, they're kind of a, a middling team right now, but they also open their season in Europe, and you know, like two or three home games, one of which was, um, you know, a bad loss where they gave up a big lead. But you know, I think he had like three points in that game. So, you know, I, I think I think he'll be good. I mean, he's a he's a great player, and 
um, you know, I, I do think he makes players around him better, which is, you know, one of the reasons they got him. Um, you mentioned a, a little bit ago about how you've been impressed with the broadcasting out West. And you also mentioned on Twitter that, you know, having the, the NHL's package, you've been learning more and more about the great announcers in the league. And one that you've been uh, made uh, <laughs> to know is our local guy, Rick Jenneret, right? And you've been really impressed <laughs> yeah. with his calls. He's great. Like, he I is... mean, well, you know, and I know he's a... You know, he's a, a huge Buffalo homer, I'm sure. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's Actually, fun to hear all these guys. You're a great, you're a big Rangers fan. Here, we have something for you. Go ahead, Don. Yeah, you're right on that. Cut close to the boards, though, the Rangers. There's Drury after it in the corner. Drury spun it out in front. There's the shot. Blocked in front. Rebound. <laughs> so that's I think he's he, I think he's the closest <laughs> to like a soccer announcer that I've heard like you feel like he's gonna you know expire with every with every goal call <laughs> yeah and that was of course from the playoffs a few years ago and the Sabres and Rangers played and the Sabres ended up eliminating the Rangers in the next game but I just wanted <laughs> to play that for you because you stole our captain so I wanted to get a little <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> revenge there for for stealing our captain but the sportscasters are here with Katie Baker from Grantland.com. You can find her on uh, Twitter. Your Twitter is just at Katie Baker, correct? Uh, at Katie Bakes with an S. At Katie Bakes with an S. Last question. You know, when we hear about Grantland, the first thing that comes to mind is Bill Simmons. And when I think of Bill Simmons, I think about a guy who is kind of battling in his own mind whether or not he's a hockey fan. Um, maybe five years ago, I would have said no way. Last year, it seems like more and more he uh, has embraced hockey. Uh, as a writer for Bill Simmons' site, do you feel a lot of pressure to make hockey sound cool to Bill Simmons? Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think whether, I don't think it's going to take uh, too much from me. Um, you know, I, I, I'm more, you know, I hope I can make hockey sound cool to him, but that's more because if I if I can do that, then I'm you know making it sound cool to a lot more people than just him. Um, but you know he's he's psyched. He he bought season tickets to the LA Kings. Um, he's been going to games. I get I get text messages from him. Um, you know, talking <laughs> talking about what he's seeing and hearing. Um, you know, I uh, I know he kind of you know, came away from hockey for a couple of years, but he was also a, a Bruins fan. And I think he probably wasn't the only Bruins fan to get a little fed up with the team. Right. Um, and the Jacobs but, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's psyched out the season. I mean, the Kings are a great team. So if there's, if there's any team that's going to, you know, lure someone in, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be them. All right. Katie Baker, you can find her writing on grantland.com. And of course you can find her on Twitter, which she clarified is at Katie Bakes with an S. Thank you very much for joining us again, Katie. We'll do it again soon. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, have a good one. Yep. Have have hockey. Thank you. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Katie.
All right, last segment of the night. I want to thank our guests, Andre Reed, Katie Baker, and Jane Levy for being a part of episode number 49 of the Sportscasters. Don't forget that next week is our big episode number 50, hopefully featuring Mike Tirico, Steve Russian, and Dave Damashek. Don't forget to check out our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. You can always email us. Our email is thesportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget we're collecting answers this week for who were our three guests today. If you email the proper three names, you are be eligible for a drawing to win the last boy. Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood in paperback written by the great Jane Levy. So people got that wrong last week, huh? Two people emailed me. Both of them were wrong. (laughs) That's Um, hysterical. One thing I wanted to do, but it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to do it because I deleted it. Someone was very kind. I guess you know who you are. Someone was very kind. I read this email to Don. Kind enough to email us and just kind of say that he discovered the show. Young kid, 17-year-old kid who's doing his best to write. Yeah, he's a writer or something. Yeah, written for website or some websites here and there that probably allows user submissions. Uh, and I just wanted to thank him for that. His name was Brendan. So thanks, Brendan, for looking out. We appreciate that. Um, other than that, pick four. Do I have to recap last week? Oh, boy. I might we, have made a. I might have set a new sportscaster's record. Yeah, Don set a record. He is the first of us to ever not win. <laughs> I know. He went 0-4. Lost the Steelers over the Patriots. He had the Patriots. Final score, 25-17. He lost the Cowboys plus four over the Eagles. Eagles won 34-7. He lost his bold prediction, which is DeMarco Murray over 150 yards. No fault of his, though. I want to note that DeMarco Murray rushed for 74 yards and a 9.3 average. Yeah. Not enough carries. Uh, The Rams over the Saints. He had the Saints. Rams won that game 31-21. I won one game. Uh, I had the Eagles over the Cowboys. Just thought that the Eagles would be the more desperate team. That proved to be correct. Sure did. Uh, I lost also the game of the week. I had the Patriots. That was no good. I inexplicably lost the Sabres over the Panthers on Saturday. Me and Don (laughs) witnessed just an unbelievable defeat, which Sabres head coach described as unacceptable. Unacceptable, yep. Should have never lost that. And I also had the same DeMarco Murray bowl prediction. So, bummer. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah, let's change that this week. The game of the week this week, LSU at Alabama. I believe they're one and two at this point. Number or, one and number two. So, I mean, you can't get a better college football game than Biggest this. Biggest college football game since Ohio State and Michigan were one and two. As far as regular Regular season, season game. Alabama is a five-point favorite. Uh, give me Alabama at home. Yeah, I have kind of been riding LSU quite a bit in the host choice picks. The thing here is that everyone, not everyone, but I've heard more than one person say that this Alabama team is the best college football team that they've seen in the last decade. And they're at home. And it's hard to win at home on the SEC, in the SEC. It's hard to win on the road, excuse right, me, right. in the SEC. Especially when you're at one a team that some people consider to be the best team in the last 10 years of college football. So I'll also lay the points and I'll take Alabama. My host choice this week, uh, it's one of them bets that when you look at it, almost looks like a sucker bet, but then I took the Saints and all the points last week. But San Francisco at Washington. Washington, uh, maybe I'm a little bit 
blinded because I watched the whole game and Del how inept Toro. they were against yeah. a bad Bills defense. A defense in the Bills that hasn't performed great all year. Uh, they did next to nothing, gave up nine sacks, which is five more than the Bills had going into the game. Um, San Francisco, on the other hand, looks like they're, they might be very good. Like It's kind of taken people a long time, time to come to around believe, on them. Maybe. Yeah, but their defense has always been pretty good in the last few years, but their offense... I love their coach. Yeah, their coach is uh, good. He's exciting. Uh, they run the ball really well, and they say if you can run and stop the run, you're going to be tough to beat. They only give up four and a half points. I know they're the road team, and Washington was just embarrassed, so maybe pride takes over here. But I'm going to take San Francisco minus four and a half all day. All right, before I give out my host choice, I just want to mention it's Brendan O'Hare was the kid who was nice enough to send us an email, and he has written for Bleacher Report, NFL, FC, Gawker, and Yahoo. Wish he would have sent me a Twitter. I would have plugged it, but I don't have one. Thanks again to Brendan O'Hare for the kind email. Okay, my host choice. I, I mentioned early, earlier I think it's a must-win game. I think that they have to play with all kinds of desperation. I think they have to bounce back. I think they have to win. I think they have to win big. I'm going to take the Saints minus 8.5 over Tampa on Sunday, 1 o'clock on Fox. I just think that they have to. They have to. That seems like a generous line, doesn't it? A little bit. Isn't it a little bit uh, weird how Vegas does it? The Saints got beaten by the Buccaneers and pretty badly, wasn't it? No. No, it was close. Saints had the ball inside the okay. red zone. They had to come back to though, a little bit, right? Yeah, but, yeah they were behind a bit. At okay. Times. But it's strange that a team, I know maybe it's just the home field advantage thing. Have they lost at home yet this year? It seems like a big spread. Have they lost at home? No. Maybe that's maybe that's it. it may, maybe people know. Like After you get beat, there's the pride thing and desperation. But yeah. I like that, too. Um, and since I didn't mention it, the Washington-San Fran game is at 1 o'clock on Fox. My worldwide leader pick this week, I'm going to go with the Baltimore at Pittsburgh matchup, which might be the the game, the pro football game of the week. A lot of good games in pro football this week. Yeah, Giants the Monday night game is good, too. Giants and Patriots is good. Yeah. Saints and Bucks is good. Bears-Eagles. A lot of games. A lot of good games. Bills-Jets, I guess. Yeah, oh, Bills-Jets is really a good game. game. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to go with the Sunday night game for my worldwide leader pick. That's uh, NBC at 8:20. Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Again, I'm going to go with a little bit of the intangible stuff here. Pittsburgh is six and two, which seems like sometimes they're doing it with smoke and mirrors. They're barely eking out some bad teams like Jacksonville and I believe Miami. They had a close game with, but they're beating teams when it counts, like the Patriots. Uh, add to that, they are home and they were embarrassed by the Ravens week one. They're only giving up three points at home, which basically in Vegas means that it's a pick 'em. I think the Steelers could win that game, so I'm going to take them to uh, evict or exact little revenge here. I'm going to make the same exact pick for a lot of the same reasons. I kind of think Pittsburgh might be the best team in the AFC. I think maybe they're second best, but they're up there. That Baltimore game seems like it was a long time ago at this point where Baltimore was able to beat Pittsburgh. And I think they did the right thing, Pittsburgh. They got home from that game and probably just threw that tape out. Uh, It was opening day. It's a tough spot to win on the road in opening day, especially the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. There's a lot of emotion in the stadium. So I'm going to throw that game away. And the last time I watched Baltimore, I seen them struggle to beat a kind of a bad Jacksonville team. And they looked embarrassing doing it. I think Pittsburgh is the better team right now. And I think the line, as you said earlier, maybe about the Tampa getting eight and a half, I think it's generous to only have to lay the three. I probably would have laid up to six. So I'm also going to take Pittsburgh. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned Baltimore struggled to beat a bad Jacksonville team. They lost that Jacksonville game. Oh, yeah, they did to lose. That's right. So, uh, and, yeah, Baltimore reminds me a lot of the Jets in certain ways. Maybe their defense is a little bit better or maybe on par, but both of their offenses are pretty inept at this point. And uh, until they learn to use Ray Rice a lot more than they do, they're going to struggle. Eight carries in that Jacksonville Yeah, box. it was embarrassing. Not enough. Uh, my bold prediction, this might be a little bit boring, but I'm going to double down on DeMarco Murray. So this pick might even be more bold. Uh, because the Philly defense is terrible. Uh, he was the surefire number one guy there. I'm not sure yet if Felix Jones will be back. I don't think. But they're playing Seattle, who has a better defense. But again, it should be. It, it's not a Philly team that can run away with the game and force them to abandon the run. So I think DeMarco Murray, who, like you said, averaged about 9. 9.3. 9.3 yards a carry. I think he can probably won't average that many yards per carry, but he should have double or triple the carries he had this game. So give me DeMarco Murray with his 150 yards again. All right. I'm going to go way out there. I'm going to say that the Colts are going to defeat Atlanta and end their winless streak. I hope so. Uh, I need this to happen. (laughs) (laughs) We'd like it to happen for personal reasons. I think the Colts Colts have a lot of pride. I think that that loss to New Orleans stung a bit. I'd hope so. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's wishful thinking for you from the yeah. uh, Saints point of view. It's wishful thinking for me from the uh, I'm playing against Michael Turner in a fantasy league. Point I'm just of gonna view. step out on the ledge here and say the Colts are gonna win that game. I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot of. Like you said, you don't want to be the team playing a team that doesn't doesn't if, have a win. If I had 25 bucks that I wanted to roll the dice with, I might take the money line of the Colts and the Dolphins this week. Yeah. I wouldn't expect to win. No. But the pay, the return's got to be nice. The return would be nice. And uh, I don't know. How long can these teams go winless? <laughs> Question for you. Do you think there will be no winless teams or no undefeated teams first? Yeah, we we kind of mentioned that before. And, or we talked about that probably at the hockey game. And you said that at some point there's just going to be a game that the Packers don't get up for. Um, I believe that. Yeah, it, it, that definitely that, happens. But will I'm that not happen sure it, or first, or will? Boy, both of the the winless teams have tough matchups this week. Who do the Colts play, or who do the Packers play? The Packers. They have play, a good. They have a good matchup. I think a good game. They play San Diego. San Diego. It's another good so game. An, right. Week, it's right. another team that's desperate for wins. San Diego could find themselves from first in their division to right out of a playoff spot if they're not careful. Uh, Green Bay is still only two games ahead of Detroit. I don't think this is when they start to fall asleep yet. And they're coming off a bye week. Uh, I'm going to say there will – and I'm going by the fact that there's still two teams with no wins. I'll say that there will hmm. – <laughs> it's really tough. All right. I, think about it. We'll talk about it more next week. Sounds good. All right. Again, I want to thank Andre Reed. I want to thank Katie Baker. I want to thank Jane Levy. I want to thank you for listening. Make sure you email us this week, the sportscasters at gmail.com let me know who the three guests were we'll put you in a drawing to win the last boy mickey mantle and the end of america's childhood by jane levy one of our guests today and we will see you next week tuesday it's going to be an exciting one episode 50 50, uh so make sure you join us and celebrate us turning 50 next week uh love you dad cue the hip All right.